was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, no. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. This doesn't look right. They got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and, and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. These gremlin type creatures. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers, three long fingers. And this is when the mental torture. And then, and then it was eerily. All right, Rob, you done with your uh, <laughs> done with your voice exercises? Yes. How do I sound? We were trying to get ready, like, <laughs> trying to get ready for the podcast. Do your voice and addiction exercises. That's right. She sells seashells by down by the seashore. Oh my god, I can't even say that, man. That's uh, it's not going to happen. Unique New York. Unique New York. Unique New York. <laughs> I can I can do that one. But the she sells seashores by the sea. <laughs> see, I, I see. I already messed it up. Yeah. Well, how you doing there, Rob? Uh, well, it's been a crazy day, man. Indeed. Like I don't even. I, well, I I went into work early and I started hearing you know little bits and pieces of stuff throughout the day. I I didn't even really have time to look into. To a lot of a lot of events that have unfolded today, because I came home and immediately we kind of started setting up for this. So um, I know that you're going to get into that side of things a little bit more. Uh, but also, Tom Petty died. Yeah, yeah. And it was weird because I found out about five minutes before this guy that um, he runs storage space where I work, and he's uh, a friend of Tom Petty's. So I got to like, you know, it was weird. It was like I heard it firsthand from somebody who actually knows the guy, and. I don't know, man. Just tragic. It was sudden. Like he was supposed to meet him next next week somewhere at really? some event they were doing, and he had a heart attack, right? Yeah, they said yeah, massive heart attack, and just see, I've heard conflicting things like that he's dead and that he's on life support, but they pulled the plug. But that's that's what happened. I mean, pretty much. Uh, yeah, he he was know. he was found. I mean, he had had a a massive heart attack, and he was. Um, why well, I understand he was essentially uh, dead, but they they put him on life support and they you know got him going that way. Right. But it was decided that he wasn't going to make it, and or that he hadn't made it, and he was just just being kept alive by that. So, but from what I understand, that that's what happened. Yeah. Well, it's like a double whammy on top of the other incident that happened. Well. I which, guess technically yesterday we're recording this on October second. Which I, I know that and I heard I heard mostly from about that story from somebody else yeah. that I know that knew a lot of people that were there because I know a lot of country artists and country musicians and, sure. and they you know they all had friends that were out there at at that festival. Really, mm-hmm. um, a friend of mine knows one of the uh, camera guys that was on stage at the time. Um, one of the other bands that was there, not Jason Aldean's band, but. They were all there backstage when it all went down, and just crazy. Did they say anything to you that just but they they saw what they saw, or 
Well, no, I'm getting a second fan from a friend of mine that knows all uh, these gotcha. people. Like, I didn't know anybody. Right. I, I might, but not that I know of. I'm not aware of anybody <laughs> that I know that was down there. Yeah. But, well, yeah, man, just the atmosphere has just been insane today. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, we're recording this on October 2nd. This is not going to be posted until, I guess, around the 8th or 9th. So... We don't really know what is going to happen between now and then. What is going to be, what more is going to be revealed. Right. Can we just kind of lay out what we know at this point? Yeah. Uh, I shall. Um, Of course, what we know is there was a big country music festival in Las Vegas that I'm not, I had never heard of this festival before, but then again, you know, I don't keep up with country music. And someone knocked out a couple windows in the Mandalay Hotel uh, that was above the country music festival and apparently started shooting automatic gunfire into the crowd. And so far, as of the time that we're recording this, there's 59 dead and 527 injured. And that's massive. So that makes this the worst in American history. It's like, well, first Sandy Hook was the worst, right, with 27. And then the Pulse nightclub last year with 48. And now this yesterday with 59 dead um, and also a very massive amount of people injured. So yeah. you can imagine the, had, you know, of course, you know, some of the injuries may be minor, like they're going to, they're, they're going to range from really severe injuries to really minor injuries. So right. not all of those are like life threatening. Well, course. and there was, there was also the, um, the chaos of people trying to get out. There was a lot yeah. of, um, I'm sure trampling and shoving and people getting knocked down. And I'm sure a lot of injuries resulted from that as well as the gunfire. Right. But the person that they're saying is the gunman is named Steven Paddock. P a double D O C K. And apparently they have found out a few things about this guy that, you know, 64 years old, he lived in a retirement community uh, called Mesquite, Nevada, which is about 80 miles away. Um, he was apparently living with this woman that was a Philip, an Indonesian national with Australian citizenship named Mary Lou. can't remember her last name, but she was apparently, the cops were apparently looking for her as well. And the police said something that I I thought was very strange. And there's a few strange things about this. Um, Anytime that this stuff happens, and of course, we're pretty much in the first 24 hours as we record this. So we're getting all kinds of reports. But one of the things that I thought was strange was the police said that, well, the chief of police and Las Vegas said that 
he had been using her ID and didn't really elaborate on what that meant. Or how? Or how. Yeah, that's exactly. And, of course, you were talking about a 64-year-old white man using the ID of a short Asian woman. How exactly does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Maybe online to get reservations for something or... Maybe, possibly, that could be it. Um, I guess, you know, when we think of those things, we think of going to the gas station and picking up cigarettes or beer. <laughs> right. Uh, so that, that's a possibility. But she's apparently out of the country. <clears throat> she's in the Philippines right now. Yeah, I'd heard they had ruled her out. Right, it, yeah. Uh, her initially. name was Mary Lou Danley. Yeah. Uh, there's been all day these interviews with his brother who lives in Florida. His name is Eric. And he has been saying all day that it's like an asteroid hit the family, that he's completely shocked, has no idea why his brother would do this. Right. Um, says that everything seemed to be normal with him. And then all of a sudden... This happens. There had been some texts and some phone calls. Like his brother said that his brother Steven had texted him after Hurricane Irma happened to check on the family, make sure that his his elderly mother was all right. So who knows there? I mean, sometimes with families, if you're not close, and especially with a relative that lives on the other side of the country, you're not always going to, know what those people are getting into. There are some people out there that are really good about keeping things secret. Well, and I mean, I don't know. I I guess it's possible in a matter of months, somebody could change just completely. Yeah. Um, turn, just lose it, I guess. And that's, I, I was talking to a friend at work earlier today about all this, like I said, and, we were trying to come up with like just some sort of rationale as to what would lead somebody to do something like this. There doesn't seem to be any political motive. You know, it wasn't like, you know, a, a gay pride shooting or mm. not that any of this would justify. I'm just trying to look for a logical cause of events that would lead to something like this. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem to be anything political about it unless he hates country music, which is a dumb way to go out. But a real way to. He, I mean, he, way to go he seemed to know he wasn't going to get away with it. Um, I have also heard two conflicting reports that he shot himself and that he was shot by the cops. By the way, I don't know which happened. But, you know, you, you can't think that you're going to be up in a uh, hotel in the middle of a populated area like that and, and pull off something like this and get away. Like, he, it must have been a suicide mission for him. I just cannot, for the life of me, figure out what could, have, what could lead somebody to that, you know? And why have a whole arsenal... In the house, in the in the hotel room or rooms. That's another. Uh, how when, did he get that in there? one is gonna do, one is gonna do enough. Yeah. How did he get him up there? It was a, an illegal weapon, and also even if it wasn't, I know that that's not allowed anywhere yeah. where alcohol and stuff is served. Like in you know, well, like a Las a, Vegas hotel, and yeah, I mean, automatic weapons are illegal, but I mean, you know, someone can modify a semi-automatic to become an automatic. Apparently, that's pretty easy to do. Yeah. Um. But it still just doesn't 
it still kind of blows my mind that he would have all this weaponry up there in those hotel in that hotel room. And the first thing I heard was 10 rifles. Now I've heard 17. And apparently I was going to say before, there's a, there's a property in uh, supposedly North Nevada that the police are going to check out. So he's he probably had stuff stashed there. Um, as I always am with these things, Rob, I'm pretty suspicious about this because we are hearing some of the second person that there was a second person involved. That there's a lot of people that think that there were more than one. There was more than one gunman. Uh, there's, there's two windows that are busted out in a fairly large space of the building. But see, sometimes, sometimes when these things happen, I look at it from a perspective like, okay, this guy might've been a fall guy because they're trying to destabilize us or pit pit us against this race or this religion or, you know, it's like, there's, there's usually something like that. I can't see any of that with this guy. You know, this was an old retired accountant that goes to Las Vegas and plays high stakes poker and that's that's his life. But it, it was and it was so premeditated like or was he in the wrong place at the wrong time? I guess, but why make him the fog guy? What's the agenda? To take out some people in a crowd? I mean, it, the first thing I thought this morning when I heard about it was that it was a country music festival. The first thing I thought was, okay, this is probably some anti-Trump person that is gotten radicalized by watching our, our too much social media yet again, this time on the left-hand side, and started shooting into the crowd, uh, much like the shooter at the... Um, Baseball park at uh, one of the shooting the Republican congressman right earlier this year, and then it became not so clear cut. But I've seen other things, and I don't know how reliable some of these these are. That apparently he's been involved, and there's a picture of him apparently in an anti-Trump protest. Um, so if he did it. It may have been for that reason, or if he was set up and made to look like he did it, it could be for that reason too, just to sow some kind of discord and chaos in this country. I could see that. I'm real suspicious just because of the fact that there's the two windows and that my thought was, okay, maybe he's, he got the two windows, he broke one and broke the other so he could run back and forth. But you could have also had two shooters sitting there in either window shooting at people. And there was a, I heard a lady today on the show on uh, CNN, they were interviewing her and they were, I guess on the floor that was right below. And the, they were the, the shooting was on the 32nd floor. They were on the 31st. And they said that they heard 
they 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 felt like it was two two people shooting up there. And so that's weird to me. Now we could find out maybe he broke one and then decided, oh, this is not a good spot, and then he went and broke another. That's the thing with all this. We really yeah. don't know. Right. We really don't honestly know what was going on. But there's always weirdness that happens in these in these instances. There is. And that the extra person thing is always kind of strange. But it's also it's it's such a um such a traumatic and extremely emotional experience for anybody right there that I think that um, it's very easy for people's minds to. The um, moment becomes enhanced. Yeah, exactly. Details get altered. You know, you're you're in full survival mode at that point. Yeah. So it's also it's really hard to to trust anyone's recall of it. Well, let's listen to this, and you've already heard this, but I want every the audience to hear this. And this this was really weird. Um, this is a 21 year old girl. She was actually celebrating her twenty-one, her twenty-first birthday party, at this festival, and she had encountered two people. She described them as short and Hispanic that were running around the crowd saying, "You better get out of here! You're about to die." This is forty-five minutes before the shooting starts. It makes me feel uncomfortable, especially coming here for my 21st birthday and not knowing if I'm safe, not even knowing if I'm safe going home tomorrow on an airplane. So, um, and, and how did you get out of the venue after this all happened? We actually weren't there whenever the shooting had occurred. We had already left about maybe 10, 15 minutes before that, but we just barely made it back into our room whenever it started. And I mean, were you thinking, oh my gosh, this this woman told us that before before we left? Yeah, I thought it had a positive correlation to it. Like, obviously, she was telling us that in either to tell us to warn us or to tell us that we were all going to die and she was part of it. So, okay, so uh, they want the description of this woman. Describe to me what this woman looked like. Her and her boyfriend were both Hispanic. They were probably about shorter five footers, probably about five, 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 six. Um, they just look like everyday people. Just. Can you tell us anything more about them? What they look like? Why were they escorted out? Were they escorted out because you were feeling uncomfortable about what they said? Yes, because she had been messing with the lady in front of her and telling her that she was going to die. That we we're all going to die. So they escorted her out to make her stop messing around with all the other people in front of them. But none of us knew that it was going to be serious. What the hell? Much That's like weird. it's weird. I can't draw any conclusions from it. No, no, I but wish, it's weird. I wish we knew um, more what the people were saying. I mean, if you're just running around saying, "Ah, everyone's gonna die," everyone's gonna die, like, but that's a hell of a coincidence. It is. It sure is. It's a hell of a coincidence. But I also, part of me wonders every if every time you get over 20,000 people together, if there isn't two waggos running around saying everyone's going to die, everyone's going to die. <laughs> sure. But in this case, it's either that that you just said, or it's time travelers. 
or it's someone that has foreknowledge of the event. Right. And if Steven Paddock, who we're being told is the See, lone wolf. That's that's my point, though. They weren't running around saying, there's a guy upstairs that's got a bunch of guns. They were running around saying, you're all going to die. Yeah. Like, that's bizarre to me. That but, it, That is bizarre. But he were being told that he's a lone, a lone nut. How would they, how would they know? And it makes me think of just, I don't know. There's something not quite right there. Also, short, Hispanic. Could you confuse a Filipino person for being or an Indonesian for being Hispanic, I think most Americans probably would. And his white, his this, his girlfriend is a short Filipino or Indonesian woman that has Australian citizenship and lit and went to the Philippines. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Just making connections here. Yeah, you know, I mean, and I'm not saying that it's her. But could it be someone when she communicated with that was in the area or who is she? An Indonesian that has Australian citizenship that is in the Philippines. I mean, honestly, without going out on too much of a limb here, can we say intelligence agency? That stinks to me. Oh, you're saying we don't know enough about her? I think we don't know enough about her, and we won't Uh, know enough about her. That's what I'm saying. Well, I think if you're right, then we'll stop hearing about her. Yeah, we will. We will. So I think time will tell, but I, I just... Much like the Pulse nightclub, that we that clip that we played when that happened where the guy said that he was being interviewed after the fact, and he said that there was a guy barring the door, not letting anybody getting out while the shooting was going on. Mm-hmm. This is similar to that or the, in a certain way. I swear I saw two people, but they told me there was just one shooter, so I guess I was wrong. Remember, that was like a direct quote yeah. from one of them. Yeah. In this case, there's two people saying you're all going to die. And we, you know... We had Robert Guffey on talking about Camilio and just the strange way that the, like, you know, that the guy that came up to him asking him, Oh, do you know the book by William Milton Cooper? The way that these, that some of these intelligence people and whatever agency it is play by some kind of weird script. That sounds scripted to me. And remember too, right before the Pulse nightclub shooting, there was the shooting the previous day where they killed the singer, where the singer was killed by the guy, and he had the, every intention of turning that into a massacre. It's stuff like that, little things like that, that really make me sit up and things that make you go, hmm. Right. What's really going on here? What the purpose of that is, I don't know. Whether that's a way to 
actually prevent more people from being killed. So some people get freaked out and leave right before it happens, but nobody really thinks about it and they don't tell anybody else. I don't know. Yeah, it's and this is from Sky News. Okay, this is from a, this is and this is actually not a U.S. This was actually not on a U.S. television station. This was on a British European television station. Hmm. Okay, so I guarantee you nobody's gonna follow up on that here. Right. <laughs> Who were these people? It's like the three tramps in the Kennedy assassination. Anyway, for the moment, that's all I really got to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll learn more in the next Yeah. Well, day. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're going on this another podcast and we'll probably end up talking about some of this tomorrow, I'm sure. Um But we have uh as a guest tonight, Eric Kurlander, and we're gonna talk about his book, Hitler's Monsters. Ooh. About the occult and the Third Reich. Experimentation and, stuff? Uh, I'm not sure there's anything about that. Ah. But that's that's a whole other That's what that title interview. conjured up in my head was the... Yeah, yeah. But this is more about the occult roots of the Third Reich and how the occult kind of permeated and, and influenced some of their ideas. And uh, I actually really think that we might have to do two interviews with this guy because there's a lot of information in his book. I couldn't even really get through it. I had to kind of skip around some of the chapters, but there's a ton of other stuff we could talk about with him. So let's go to that. And, and, and honestly, truly, um, I do want to say this, that despite whoever might have done it, whether it was this Stephen Pratt guy or somebody else, actual people did die in Las Vegas. People are actually hurt. And, you know, we really need to keep that in mind, I think, as we, as we move on, because I think there is a, there is a certain amount of the alternative media that gets a little insensitive when stuff like this happens. Sure. Yeah. Definitely want to keep them and their families and all that in mind. It's a horrible tragedy, no matter why or how it was committed. So, yep, Exactly. Well, let's go to the guest and uh, we'll real be... quick. I just want to, since I respect our listeners and I and I respect all of your intelligence, if I sound like I'm very buzzed up by the end of this show, it's because I've tried everything to get rid of the itching of my poison ivy. So <laughs> I'm going to try alcohol now. It's horrible. Well, alcohol solves all things, right? Yeah, temporarily. <laughs> it adds more problems to the future, but <laughs> your liver might get a little pickled. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll be back on Conspiracy Normal.
right, guys, we're back on Conspiracy Normal, and of course, we're still here, myself and Mr. Robberino. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> still itchy. And yeah, he's still itchy from his poison ivy. That hasn't gone away. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's never a good thing uh, when that happens. But on the line, we have Dr. Eric Kurlander. Um, I'm really excited to have him on because... Uh, I heard an interview with him on dark on uh, beyond the darkness. Now it's not darkness radio anymore, but they were talking about a book called Hitler's monsters. And in the book, you talk about kind of like the, the interest and kind of the obsession that certain members of the Nazi third Reich had with the occult and kind of the occult origins of the Nazi party. So what kind of brought your interest into writing a book about this? Great question. So um, I think my interest in the Third Reich is, is longstanding and is one of the reasons I got, um, got my PhD in German history and not French history, because I'm, I'm fascinated by French history as well. But I really, I was interested in the, in the Third Reich and the Holocaust from early on. And I also read comic books as a kid and watched horror movies and, and read Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft and Anne Rice. So I've always been interested in, in the paranormal. And obviously, when you start studying the Third Reich, you, you find out, at least on the fringes of the history of the Third Reich, and certainly now with the History Channel and American Heroes Channel and all these different cable news outlets the last 15 or 20 years, you're constantly bombarded by this idea of an, of an occult history behind the Third Reich. And so at some point I thought, well, why not marry those two interests and and do a serious study that um, systematically addresses, you know, all these different themes that are supposedly um, a link to the Third Reich, um, some of which are, are occult, but others I would call pagan religion or border science or mythology. So that's why I chose Supernatural, because I really wanted to subsume all the themes that come up in this context and not just with traditional occultism, which, which is a pretty broad brush, but, but also has certain limits to it. Um, you know, where the cult ends and some other things begin. Sure. I wanted to ask you before we kind of get into the main part of the interview, there's a couple of terms that I'd like to kind of get your definition of that you use frequently in the book. Uh, one of those is border, border science, and the other is the supernatural imaginary. Right. Great question. And, you know, it took me a while to, um, to kind of arrive at those, at those terms and, and use them um, with confidence. The, the border science is really a term I got from the, from the primary sources. So um, occultists, and um, kind of alternative scientists and even some Nazis in the 20s and 30s would refer to certain practices, which we would now call a cult, but also sometimes we might call it pseudoscience, let's say. Um, they would use the term Grenzwissenschaft. Grenze uh, in German is, is border or, mar- or, or, yeah, the border to something, on the margins of something, and Wissenschaft is science. So, Border science is the best way to translate that. And when they use the term border science, they didn't use it interchangeably with what we would call pseudoscience, a term they already had, pseudo, pseudo, 
Wissenschaft, right? Okay. It was a more positive term. It meant um, a kind of science that's on the borders of what is acceptable, right? So it's on the borders of what mainstream scientists would consider real science. But there's something there, and if you just commit to it, like pendulum dousing or parapsychology, you can uncover phenomena that you can't uncover or understand using conventional methods. You follow that? I do. So it's it's studying, it's using sciences that are on the border of what is accepted science, looking at phenomena that are marginal or on the borders of what are considered empirically um, accessible phenomena. And it has another meaning, which overlaps with that for these people in the 20s and 30s, the idea of interdisciplinarity. The Nazis loved to invoke the idea that, you know, all disciplines need to be um, flexible and evolving and, and often, you know, to make them folkish and organic, right? Not Jewish and materialist and, and liberal, but they would invoke what we would now call interdisciplinarity. You should use multiple methods to get at, you know, the origins of, of Aryan blood. You don't have to be rigid in this, the way mainstream scientists are with their, with their rigid discipline. So it has, it has all these connotations. And I thought it was much more authentic to use it in that sense than just throw in pseudo-Wissenschaft, pseudoscience, every time I talked about one of these, these doctrines, which are not identical to occultism. We can get into that. But border science is really... Um, a whole genre of science, right, that they, that they pursued. And then supernatural imaginary is a larger um, kind of concept I came up with to define the various ideas, border scientific, occult, and pagan religious, that were floating around in Austrian Germany at the turn of the century, and that many people, not just Nazis, but, you know, average Germans and Austrians were aware of, and, and kind of grew up or socialized or acculturated to see if not as completely acceptable, then at least as kind of viable alternative ways of viewing the world. And I call these, these cluster of ideas, not all of which, you know, everyone accepts at all times, the supernatural imaginary. So it's something more specific than a culture per se, which is a very broad term, right? Um, but nothing so specific as an ideology or a doctrine. Sure. It's not specific enough to be one ideology. So my way of dealing with that is to call it the supernatural imaginary. And I kind of used um, the philosopher Charles uh, Taylor's idea of a social imaginary and then replace the social with the supernatural. Um, anyway, I, that, that was a somewhat long response, but I hope that helps articulate what those terms mean. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's very important to understand those, especially moving forward. Another one I wanted to ask you about is a German term um, that a lot of people are, may not be familiar with, which is, uh, I think you pronounce it folkish. Mm-hmm. What, what does that term actually, mean? It's sometimes translated literally into English as folkish, F-O-L-K-I-S-H which is more or less how you pronounce it in German, folkish, um, which can mean, like in English, just having to do with kind of folk culture, popular culture in a more traditional context, right. you know, like Washington Irving stories or, you know, folk dances. Um, but in 
by the late 19th century, the connotation folkish often had racial and quasi-religious, even mystical elements to it. So it's this, this term that unites, I would say, culture, ethnicity, blood, and religion in one. And the idea is that only pure Germans can participate in this folkish um, culture and society. And out of that comes a concept that the Germans often use, especially the Nazis, of the Volksgemeinschaft, which literally translated could be popular community or national community, but always has this kind of racial, mystical, organicist element to it that we don't quite have in English when we use the term folk or folkish. And right. so it's good that you bring it up. It it has a specific connotation in German that it doesn't have in its English translation. And Did... Did the Nazis yeah. kind of pervert the term in a way? Well, if you want to, if you want to look at folklore, Volkskunde in Germany by the 19th century, you would use the term Volkskunde, the Grimm's fairy tale. So and sure. there is a kind of neutral way of using the term folk or, or Volkskunde. But I would say it wasn't just the Nazis. By the late 19th century, the idea of the folk, the people in this folkish sense, um, started to have, you know, this kind of intrinsic racial religious connotation and the Nazis certainly there's anything that united the Nazis because it's a very disparate party or movement. It was this belief in the, in the folkish ideal, right? Whether you were on the left or the right on economic issues, whether you wanted to expand all the way into Russia or just into Poland, whether you had a more Darwinistic biological sense of race or a more mystical religious cultural sense of race, the idea of folkish unity and the folks Gemeinschaft pretty much transcended all of that. So it's that's why it's an important term. It's something that anyone who kind of bought into Nazism um, would have shared. And it and it clearly overlaps with esoteric and border scientific thinking, as you can see in the book. I think that a lot of people will look at the Nazis and their rise to power and they will say that a lot of these ideas just kind of started with them. They were the first ones and this kind of stuff just started in a vacuum, but that's absolutely not true because as you point out in the book, I mean, this starts in the 19th century. And I mean, even, um, you know, in world war one, there were German soldiers that were putting swastikas on their helmets. So this, there was this kind of like this milieu that was going on uh, in the 19th and late 19th into the early 20th century. And I'll ask you about a couple of these guys. Uh, the Guido von List and van Liebenfels uh, were very important mm-hmm. to kind of like this idea of Ariosophy. And I want to get to Theosophy and Anthropophysy, which is, I can't even say that word, but there's the. Uh, I want to ask you about those two guys because they are very instrumental in bringing some of this about. And this is occurring in uh, the late 19th and the early 20th century when Hitler is, you know, nobody knows even who he is. Exactly. Right. So the, the point I want to make that there's the one really good study that precedes my own that actually focuses on the, the occult roots of Nazism and doesn't just kind of Tacking on it. So I, I have a colleague, Corinna Tritella, wrote a great book on German occultism from the 1880s to the 1940s. But she really initially wasn't interested in the Nazis. She was interested in the broader occult and esoteric movement and how 
widespread it was. And at the end, she did do a chapter on it. But the only book that really academic study that looked at it in detail was a study of Ariosophy. And his conclusion, which I agree with, is all these people were kind of important symptoms of the ideas that many Nazis would end up sharing, but they didn't, the Nazis weren't appropriating their ideas per se, right? That the Ariosophists didn't cause Nazism. Sure. Where I, where I think I, I would revise that a little bit or add to it in the book, as you can see, is I, it's pretty clear that the ideas that defined Ariosophy, that there's root races, including the Aryans that had a advanced civilization, Atlantis or the Thule, that um, you know Jews were the most evil and powerful subhuman race who used other subhuman races to, you know, destroy Aryan civilization. That you could recover Aryan civilization through proper breeding and a kind of religious belief in Indo-Aryan culture and the blood. There's so many, you know, kind of chauvinism. Um, Believing that Thor and Odin were the the true Nordic, um, you know, the true uh, gods of the Nordic people, and that you know Jesus is really Balder, the the Norse god who rose from the dead. All of these, this cluster of ideas, which the Ariosophists kind of made, kind of systematized, were widespread. And so, why the reason they're so interesting? And some of them did become Nazis or directly influenced the Nazis, and I show that. They're kind of the epitome of this supernatural imaginary and the way it overlaps with all the things we associate with Nazism. So it doesn't matter, as I say in the book, whether Hitler read uh, Lanzmann Liebenfeld's Ostara or not, and there's evidence Mm -hmm. that he did and there's evidence he may not have. It's clear that growing up in Linz and Vienna, in the period when those ideas were popular and, and Ostara was selling thousands of copies, could not do any, it, it, it indicates how widespread this way of thinking was and how Hitler was immersed in it, like many other people born in the 1880s and 90s. So what I'm trying to show there is the genealogy of the supernatural imaginary of which Ariosophy is kind of the epitome. I'm not trying to make a, a direct causal argument that they created the Nazis, but I then show, as I think right. you're probably going to get to, how, how Ariosophic groups, 10 years, 20 years later, ended up creating the kernel of the Nazi party. So the Nazis themselves emerged from an Ariosophic group. That is, that's true. I mean, that's just empirically a fact. Yeah. It's a, it's a cultural, cultural milieu, you know, that, that they're, that they're in, right. Not, not a direct link. Uh, That's the, that's a, that's a, that's a very good point. And I think sometimes in the, in the documentaries and some of the more sensational, uh, books about this like they'll say well you know well, these guys caused the nazis to come about but no there was just all this these different ideas were just floating around out there and um and and the swastika is one of them yes. the swastika represents for ariosophists and and even anthroposophists theosophists the indo-aryan um cultural heritage religio racial heritage that almost all of these nordic and germanic groups share so the better question is, um, why do the Nazis all agree that the swastika, this seemingly obscure Indo-Aryan symbol, um, should be their party symbol? Because it was so mainstream in their milieu, they didn't even think about how odd that would look. Right, right. Right? 
even even if Hitler himself might have been thinking, well, I don't want this wandering scholar wearing a bearskin to be running the meeting I'm in, because that's a little embarrassing and it'll turn off certain voters who are bourgeois, maybe a little better educated, not as 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 folkish or esoteric. He never questioned the the swastika being the symbol. It was just so ingrained in that milieu, right? And that's one of the points I make, right? So, well, you had the yeah. uh, the Free Corps um, divisions, the 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 kind of the paramilitary of the Weimar Republic. Those guys would go around with swastikas on their vehicles and on their helmets, and, and so I mean, it was as you as you said. I mean, it was a normal. It was just a normal symbol every day that meant something to people. And they'd use the death's head, right. which is also mm-hmm. from 19th century folkish paramilitary groups, which of course the SS would take on. And they would, there were werewolf paramilitary groups, which had a long tradition in Germany where they literally called themselves werewolves. And we know that the Nazis then appropriated that. So I'm trying to show the genealogy. These were all ideas that within the folkish esoteric milieu, the supernatural magic, were very popular and really defined ways of thinking that go beyond any specific causal relationships. So there are many of those as well. You don't have to get to that level to see how how important this, this broader milieu was in defining what it was to be a Nazi and why people were attracted to them. What was the influence of theosophy, um, B- uh, Blavatsky's um, influence, and um, anthropos- anthropophacy? I cannot say that. R- Rudolf Steiner's um, ideas. Right. An and interesting, right. so great... interesting thing about yeah. Steiner, uh, I- I'm sure you've read Traver, Trevor Reven- Ravenscroft's book, The Spear of Destiny. Right. Of and yep. and that thing is really almost like an apology for Steiner because Steiner is his hero. He's the good guy in that book. If you, <laughs> if anyone has read it, right? There are two kinds of crypto or pseudo history, as Nicholas Goodrich Clark puts it. There's just sensationalist stuff by people who want to appeal to the market who don't have any investment in this and re- and probably privately would admit it's a lot of speculation. They met some old Polish officer who said X and made a good story. Right. And then there's people like Trevor Ravenscroft or um, Jacques Bergier and these others who are themselves occultists or esotericists who, because they're immersed in that milieu. And this, this is actually central to my book's arguments. So it's worth pointing this out post 45 want to rescue certain aspects of that milieu as being cosmopolitan, pro-allied, liberal, authentic, earth mother, whatever. And then the other, and then there's the way the Nazis perversed it, dark magic. And, and so it's almost right. like they're arguing within the supernatural imaginary. They're not, they're not historians trying to weigh the role of this kind of thinking, which of course they just assume to be false, right? Or, or, or obviously no one has magical powers. They're, they're trying to show the ways the Nazis perverted some doctrine that was otherwise like Rudolf Steiner's anthroposophy, a very valid way of looking at the world. It's such bad history, even though it's fascinating and very often very well written. And yet until very recently, that has been a lot of the yeah, as you just seized on it, right? It's, I mean, it seems like they're more interested in rescuing one occultist over another than they are in 
taking a step back and saying, why was this so popular? Yeah. And which, which, dif- which doctrines played the biggest role in Nazism and which didn't. Um, it was like Steiner and, and Hitler. Yeah. It was like Steiner and Hitler were having a wizard battle. That's basically that, how that book exactly. goes. Exactly. <laughs> Which is not inaccurate in this sense. Well, first of all, Steiner was dead in 24 and, and never really saw the Nazis as a major political force. Um, so that's absurd on the face of it. But um, theosophy, so, so here's, just to take a step back, there's a renaissance in occult and pagan religious thinking and border science in the late 19th century. And I call it a renaissance. I mean, I'm not, I don't, a lot of my colleagues would argue this, because this is post-Industrial Revolution, post-Enlightenment, post-Scientific Revolution. So all these ideas were around in the Middle Ages, right? Or in ancient Greece, you know, there's Paracelsus in the early modern period. Um, but then with the, with the rise of, of science, right, a lot of these ideas get pushed to the margin. Mm-hmm. Um, or traditional religion, which also finds them threatening. Right. Because they, they, in a way, they're faith-based. And when science becomes so ingrained and industrialization, this is Max Weber's argument, he's not the only one, Durkheim, and they all know it in the late 19th century, people need to find some way of of getting back in touch with their faith and spirituality. And the vehicle for that becomes this kind of modern renaissance and occult thinking, um, organicist. The reason occultism was so popular is occultism united faith and science, right? Right. The big occult doctrines took border scientific thinking on the one hand and kind of pagan, Atlantean, pseudo-Christian, pseudo-Hindu ideas on the other and created this kind of cocktail that semi-educated people or, you know, a smart lawyer who had no background in science or religion found really attractive and helped them, you know, as, as John London said, whatever gets you through the night, right? And, and that became very popular not just in Germany and Austria, but in France and Britain and America, you had all these spiritualist yep. movements. It and also, add, it also added in social Darwinism as well. Exactly. Yeah. But, but what I want to be careful of here is theosophy on the, on the face of it, while it talked about root races and, and again, Darwinism, Herbert Spencer, it's Britain, you know, that's popular everywhere. But the, the systematic racial science we associate with Nazism never gets, uh, never really gets mainstreamed the same way in the occult movements in France, Britain, or America. Sure. Um, I would say while those movements are somewhat popular, there's a, there's some kind of self-awareness that, you know, there's a reason a lot of them get pushed into pulp fiction and, and, you know, w- weird tales and interesting, you know, novels and horror movies, and you don't have the same kind of public um, insistence that these are new ways of doing the world um, that you have in Germany and Austria, number one. So I don't, I don't think they're as mainstream by the 20s and 30s, number one. They also don't get racialized or politicized as much. So while Blavatsky has this Darwinist element of root races, and 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 um, Edward Bulwer Lytton, her British kind of amanuensis, um, they're just as interested in writing, you know, fantasy stories and helping people meditate. And what you see happening in Germany, the Theosophists, so um, Franz Hartmann and Hubert Schleiden and um, Steiner, who's also a Theosophist through the early 20th century, 
they kind of take all these ideas and they go to the same conferences in Paris and Vienna, and they become a little more racialized and a little more politicized, I would argue. If you look at the Austrian and German versions of them, the racial stuff and the anti-Semitism plays a much bigger role. And I have a colleague, Peter Staudenmeier, who studied it in detail. And, and you know, there, there are a number of German scholars who have noted that. So that's number one. Then when anthroposophy is created by Steiner, the what I would call peculiarly German and Austrian elements of it, which include more of the racial and anti-Semitic stuff, but also this kind of cult-like desperation to create something that unites science and religion, faith and and spirituality in one, one hand and kind of the material world in the other. This is very much at the center of what Steiner is trying to do, which is also something Blavatsky was trying to do. And it seems to attract a lot of Austrians and Germans um, combined with that racial stuff, even before World War One, And then that gets appropriated by the Ariosophists, who also riff off of theosophy, but make the racial purity and the creation of a kind of neo-Germanic racial Indo-Aryan empire the central part. So reaching some kind of enlightenment and taking pictures of ghosts and getting to an astral plane, that's all wonderful. And they all read and publish in the same magazines, right? So, so Bottendorf is also a leading astrologer, the guy who founds the Thule Society and and um, helps create the Nazi party. He's an Ariosophist, but he's also a leading astrologer, and he publishes articles, as does Lanz von Liebenfels in, in Steiner's magazine, which I think he called Lucifer, okay, which we'll get to later on. But <laughs> yeah. the, the Anthroposophists were still a little more concerned with creating communes and finding you know, border scientific ways to explore the soul and reach a higher being than they were in eliminating Jews or creating a master race. They started to get interested in that stuff. I'm, I'm talking about a continuum here, but it wasn't central to what they did. It was central to what the Ariosophists did. But the you point would, I make is, yeah. Well, but you would say that Steiner's group, that they were still anti-Semitic. Many of them. So, okay. so theosophists, when they're meeting in New York and London, you could have a bunch of Jewish theosophists and barely come up and they could all, you know, practice their polymorphous perversity. Alistair Crowley could show up and <laughs> it would all be very nice. When you move into Germany and Austria, it's harder for Jews to be involved. There were some, certainly in theosophy, even in anthroposophy, but there are also anthroposophists, as you just suggested, who are rabid anti-Semites were obsessed with racial purity. When you get to Ariosophy, it's, it's it would be unheard of to have someone who couldn't trace their heritage back, you know, six generations showing right. it's Nordic or Germanic. So right. there's this continuum that's where the race, the racial science, the root races that are that are there in Blavatsky's ideas in the 1870s, 80s, you know, somewhat coming out of Hinduism, some some something out of Darwinism, right? It's central by the time you get to the German and Austrian versions in the decade before World War One, and that's an important difference, I would argue. And Same then, epistemologies, but the content and the way they're deployed is different. But the Ariosophists, you know, tracing, saying, you know, well, I could trace my lineage back six generations. You see that reflected later on in the Nuremberg Laws. 
Oh yeah, I mean all yeah. those groups, all those focus groups did that. So the, again, the Nazis are not inventing anything. The, the German Order, which was very much an Ariosophic group created by the greatest, greatest, most infamous anti-Semite in Germany, Theodor Fritsch, was obsessed with racial purity, and and he he even he was the first, as I argue in the book, to really try to do both. They never quite knew. Are they primarily occult groups? You know, who also believe in racial purity, but focus on religion and these border sciences, or are they political groups? And what Fritsch did, starting in 1912, even before World War I, is he had two wings. He had this German order, which, you know, met like Knights of the Round Table and traced their lineage and had weird runic alphabets and, you know, talked about astrology and hung out at castles, all the stuff that Himmler and other Nazis loved doing later on. But they created the Hammer Association, named after his anti-Semitic publishing house, which was supposed to be political and unite all racially pure Germans, whether they were you know, left-leaning, right-leaning, workers, bourgeois, and one party that would fight you know, the Jews and the communists and women's emancipation. And I argue that that's the beginning of the template for the Nazis. Right? The Nazis recognize, ultimately, it's this, all this other stuff's well and good. But what we need is a practical political wing, a movement that can actually gain power. And that genesis, I argue, starts with the German order, continues through the Thule Society, which also creates its own political wing, the German Workers' Circle, then German Workers' Party. And then eventually the politics um, overtakes the supernatural imaginary stuff. So. Goebbels and Hitler say, okay, you know, we're not going to exclude you from the party if you believe in this hex. We believe in some of it, but the important thing is getting power. That's a very different argument than saying the Nazis are hostile to those ideas. They just recognize, based on the incompetence of the folkish movement for the 40 or 50 years prior to 1920, that you don't lead with runic alphabets and expensive dues meeting in the Four Seasons Hotel. Yeah. You lead with, we're going to save the workers from exploitation by the Jewish capitalist system. And then you can write your books and articles about folkish purity and paganism and a German Christmas at the same time, which they do. How is the Nazi party, which at the time when it starts out, is called the German Workers' Party. How do they start? How are they essentially really founded really by the Tula Society? How does that how does that start? Right. So, so you've got the Ariosophic groups and you know the the mayor of Vienna, um, Hitler's you know, idol, Karl Lueger, mm-hmm. um, who many people see as very pragmatic. Even he was a member of the the Order of New Templars, Lanson Liebenfeld's Ariosophic group. Um all sorts of famous right-wing thinkers in Vienna and Munich were members, but they, it wasn't a political group, right? It was a kind of secret society, semi-secret society, like Freemasons. Um, and then Fritsch, as I argue, this guy, the Saxon guy, creates the German order. The German order wasn't doing very well during the war. There's all sorts of speculation they themselves make. Um, basically, they were too elitist, too bourgeois, too expensive. Um, they didn't really have a political program. They had a bunch of chapters all over Germany and Austria. Um, and one of those chapters in 1916, this, led by this guy, Hermann Pohl, this radical Saxon anti-Semite, um, the Wallfader chapter, um, was opened in Munich. And his job, supposedly, was to get to increase membership in Munich. 
Well, he already wasn't getting along too well with Fritch, which is typical of these focus groups. They were all very individualist and eccentric and didn't really know how to run a party. And so he met Sebotendorf, who was a, a German occultist and astrologer who had gone to Turkey to learn, you know, um, the Kabbalah and all these odd things. And Sebotendorf was a very charismatic guy, kind of a natural leader who wanted a lot of influence. He said, why don't you help me with resuscitating this German order in Munich. And then Paul and Subotendorf had a falling out, but Subotendorf in 1917, 1918 actually, met a guy named Walter Nauhaus, who I talk about in the book, who was a, a failed artist about the same age as Hitler, who got wounded in the war, had just come back to Munich. And he had something called the Thule Society that he had founded, which is really a discussion circle for occult Ariosophic thinkers. And so Bodnar said, hey, that's awesome. Why don't you join the German order? And hey, maybe we'll make, in order for the, to get the police to stop following us around, maybe we'll call ourselves a Thule Society because that sounds like an odd esoteric group, not as politically well-known as the German order. And then we can kind of, under the guise of the Thule Society, talk about how we're going to get rid of the Jews and eliminate the communists and resuscitate a greater Germanic Aryan empire. Now, they don't have a lot of members, but you've already seen how this comes directly out of the Ariosophic Masonic orders, right? Right. And they're, they're running around in, you know, July, August 1918, during the last offensive on the, on the Western Front. When that fails, you start to see them become more radicalized and politicized, because they're realizing they might lose the war. They're blaming the Jews, which is just par for the course. They're blaming the communists, the liberals. Um, the weak, you know, monarchical government, which they're no longer as loyal to. And by September and October of that year, they're trying to get more members. And they're still giving lectures on dousing rods, but they're also giving lectures on mm. how we need a national and social program that appeals to workers as well as, as the bourgeois, similar to how Fritsch was arguing a few years earlier. And that's when people we know, like Dietrich Eckert and Rudolf Hess and Alfred Rosenberg, start hanging out with them and coming to meetings at the Four Seasons Hotel and getting involved. It all started and at the Four also, Seasons. It all started at the Four Seasons. <laughs> and then the war ends, okay, and everything collapses. And they start joining and forming their own paramilitary groups with the Fry Corps. The Bogdorf has his own group which has a lot of early Nazis in it. Um, they're still meeting, and it's around this time, I think it was October, right before the war ended, that a guy named Karl Haar, who was the editor of the Fokusher Beobachter, which the Bottendorf had bought. Okay, okay, now people who know German history know that the Münchener Beobachter, later the Fokusher Beobachter, was the central Nazi paper right. for the next 20 years. It was bought by the Bottendorf and the Thule Society for propaganda purposes. Harr, who was the editor of that paper, and Anton Drexler, another member of the Thule Society, decided to create a workers' circle to attract workers to this otherwise elitist group. That workers' circle in January, six weeks after the war, when they were really kind of desperate, they decided to create an actual party, which would be parallel to the Thule Society. So while they, they were still associated with the Thule Society, they wanted their own political party. They called it the German Workers' Party, Drexler and Haar, right? Hess joined it. 
Rosenberg. And seven, eight months later in September, Hitler came to a meeting, heard uh, Gottfried Fader speaking, thought, well, I kind of agree with him, but he's not very eloquent. Let me give my ideas. And then he joined it. So you can literally see how this Ariasophic group led by Nauhaus and Sabatendorf within a few weeks, you know, not only attracted a lot of the early Nazis, but morphed into the Nazi party. That is not an accident. I think that's been underestimated, the importance of that um, connection, direct connection, right, in sure. the genesis of the Nazis. It's not an accident that they emerge right out of this milieu. Yeah. And you make the point in the book as well, you know, that when Hitler comes in, he's still in the army. Um, he's actually like almost an army spy sent in to spy on these different political groups in Munich. And um, when he comes in, they say, oh, well, now, you know, we can have like almost like the army's endorsement in a way. I don't even think they knew what Hitler's purpose was. Hitler... You know, and this often had, right? So there's a lot of these soldiers who have jobs. The army hires some of them. Hitler's role was to report on any radical group, left or right. Um, so he would, in his own desultory fashion, kind of show up to some of these things for a few months. And we also have to remember that even the social, so the, and this is maybe getting into too much of the general history, not the occult history, sure. but in Bavaria, there was a left-wing Sparta, Spartacist movement, kind of what proto-communist movement that revolted and took over and created a short-lived republic under a Jewish socialist named Kurt Eisner. Um, obviously, support North and all these, but hated him for every, you know, all sorts of reasons. He's he's not a nationalist. He's Jewish. He's a communist. So they wanted to kill him, and they were coming up with all these plans to kill and kidnap him. And they kept getting harassed by the police and arrested. Right. The one reason Sabat North is basically demoted is he is so incompetent in these paramilitary group. He keeps getting caught. Um, <laughs> then they, they, they arrest seven of the people who are going to try and take out Eisner and they execute him, execute all seven. Um, so he's kind of pushed aside there, but in this environment, what's so ironic is the socialists who were running the general Weimar government, not the far left wing communists, the socialists were so desperate to maintain order. They hired right-wing, you know, fanatical paramilitary like Sabotendorf and Reinhard Heydrich and Himmler and Ernst Röhm, gave them weapons and said, you know, go out and catch us communists. We don't need, you know, left-wing communist Bolshevism. So people like Hitler were getting funded, ironically, by the left-wing Weimar government to, yeah. to crack down on the far left much more than they were being asked to crack down on the far right. Right. If anything, the far right was being given money. And it's in that context that the Dual Society felt confident enough to create their party. Because, I, you know, the imperial government didn't like any radicalism. So they were actually looking for right-wing radical groups as well. In the early Weimar Republic, if you were a right-wing group associated with the paramilitary fighting the communists, there was a little window there where that was actually okay. And Hitler found the Thule Society or found the German Workers' Party in that period. Um, they were not yet being banned or persecuted. It's another way of putting it. You, so, you go on in the book to talk about kind of the rise to power of the Nazis. Um, 
after you know after the Great Depression hits and the Nazis come in come into power and and they kind of use a lot of these these occult guys, some writers, um, magicians, in order to as a, like a propaganda tool. And two of the ones that you mentioned are Hans Heinz Ewers and uh, of course Hanusen, who was Jewish, which is interesting in all in and of itself. But uh, you know, Ewers was a uh, a horror writer. And he was actually employed mm-hmm. to, to to write books for the Nazi Party. Let's talk exactly. about those those two th- those two figures. Right. So again, I'd say it's they're both it's both fascinating because of the direct causal relationship and the wider symptoms that are represented. Right. So I'm not arguing that the only reason the Nazis come to power is because they hire occult propagandists like Avers or because of their association with the you know, magician, clairvoyant, Hanusen. I'm arguing that these relationships are emblematic of the broader supernatural imaginary that attracted Nazis or Germans to Nazis, right? And helped the Nazis get power. And what's fascinating in both cases, you have contemporary observers, liberal, socialists, Bertolt Brecht, who I cite, thinking this is exactly what's happening. Like they're tapping into this mystical stuff, getting this horror writer who writes about vampires you know, and, and, and you know, Frankenstein prostitute zombie women having sex with and then murdering men and, and, you know, devil worship. All of this is perfect, Brecht says, because this is what the Nazis are about. They're about exploiting this darker supernatural side of, of German life, which, which a subset of, of Germans find very attractive and, and feel represents their kind of disenchantment with the Republican, rationalist, materialist, Jewish world. And, and, you know, a horror writer is a perfect propagandist because, you know, they actually believe that stuff. And, and, and so, um, Avers is a, is a well-known horror writer, kind of the Stephen King or HP Lovecraft of the teens and twenties, who's come out a little bit on hard times. He's a horror writer after all, in the midst of the depression, not making a lot of money, not getting a lot of attention. Um, he's buddies with Hitler's chauffeur, chauffeur, gets a meeting, and he's also friends with Ernst Rome, the esoterically inclined gay leader of the stormtroopers. And those two guys, the, the, the Harvard you know, trained chauffeur and the uh, leader of the stormtroopers kind of get him a meeting with Hitler, who's impressed by one book he'd already written saying how awesome the stormtroopers were that has all sorts of references to Lanslon Liebenfeld and mysticism and meetings in graveyard and implicitly, you know, homosexual liaisons, which makes Hitler a little uncomfortable. Rosenberg yeah. very uncomfortable, but Hitler says, well, this is great. You make the movement sound, you know, wonderful and attractive. How would you like to write another book? I'll open the archives for you. Um, this is by the way, on his 60th birthday, he gets this meeting with Hitler and uh, Aver says, yeah, that'd be wonderful. And he ends up writing a biography of Horst Vessel, the famous song that the Nazis always sing. It's this martyr, right? He was really this kind of loose, um, you know, young, violent Nazi who is, you know, running around in the underground circles of Berlin, the same, just like Avers and Rome did, got in fights with communists, uh, owed people money, gets, gets murdered by a communist. And then is made into this martyr, 
um, because he wrote poetry and they use poetry in the song. Anyway, Aver says, Hey, I, I, I love, I, I'll write a biography of this guy. And the biography does really well. Goebbels wants to make it into a movie. Vessel gives a speech at his grave, literally like two weeks before the Nazis are invited into the government. There's this huge parade that ends in the graveyard at night with flaming torches. And Hitler gives a speech and Rome gives a speech. And then Avers gives a speech, this weird, you know, this horror writer guy. So it's just fascinating that he would be elevated to this level in, in a few short years as a major propagandist for the Nazi party. Um, especially when the left is just attacking him mercilessly. Like, why would you have a vampire horror writer with weird, <laughs> you know, sexual proclivities? He's done all this bizarre stuff as your as one of your propagandists. Like, the left doesn't get it, but it works. Um, and then with Hanusen, similarly, Hanusen is a Austro-Jewish, lower middle class circus performer. I think his parents were performed the circus. I forget exactly what, what, um, how he got into it, who claims that early on, he didn't really believe in magic, but then he, he realized it, it, it could be real if you really know what you're doing. And, um, and he started out trying to show how tricks were done, then realized it's better to claim he actually had ability to perform magic. And, you know, started to become relatively popular in Austria, I think got arrested, went to Germany, changed his name. So he didn't sound Jewish anymore from Steinschneider to Hanusen, sounded <laughs> Danish. Um, created a huge career for himself in Weimar, constantly was being sued for kind of deceiving people and brought to court, but they could never prove he was doing it on, you know, that he was actually deceiving people. And some people were like, well, he's really good at, you know, reading minds and things. Maybe he can really do it. And a bunch of Nazi stormtroopers in Berlin, where the stormtroopers were kind of centered, um, Graf Haldorf and these other guys, become friends with him and party on his yacht and drive around in his car. And he starts writing already in 1930 in all his magazines. You know, the Hitler's the, the guy who's going to save us from, you know, all this horrible stuff going on. And and you should vote for Hitler. And I'm seeing the future, and it's the Nazis. And so there's this weird mm. synergy in Germany's major city where a lot of the politics is going on between Hanusen, who has tens of thousands of people reading his stuff and the Nazi leaders. And then right after they, they, they take power like four weeks later, which he actually, he predicts. So this is fascinating too. Mm -hmm. And again, we, we talk about all these things in, in great detail. Uh, he has a house of occultism in a very wealthy district of Berlin where he invites people for seances and some people have to pay for tickets, others don't. And some of his Nazi, his essay, stormtrooper friends come to those things. And on February 26, he has a seance. So it's now six weeks. Well, actually four weeks after the Nazis come to power, he's still Jewish. He's still a, you know, clearly a charlatan magician. He's still making lots of money. He has a big seance. His Nazi buddies show up and at it, he predicts, he sees, you know, in the, a straw world, right? This giant fire of a major official building. And everyone there says he did say this. The very next day, the Reichstag set on fire. There's a whole separate historiography on this. Now, obviously, one possibility is he really did see the future. I don't believe that. Another one, obviously, is that his essay friends, who knew they were going to set fire to the Reichstag as an excuse to ban the communists, right? Uh huh. Told him. 
and he knew it. So he's like, I'm going to predict this and be, look even cooler. Um, so people who are still debating whether the Nazis set the fire or just took advantage of it, and it really was the communists, sometimes get involved in this. You know, what did Hanneson know? How did he know it? For me, what's important is a bunch of Nazis are at the seance and are friend, friendly enough with him to be there four weeks after they take over and possibly tell him they were going to do this, right? What's also interesting is three or four weeks after this, there's an order given, probably by Goering, to kill him because he knows too much. So his own friends kind of kidnap right. him and murder him. Right. Now, some people say, well, they, they murder Hannesen because he's Jewish and an occultist, and the Nazis don't like occultism or Jews. Obviously, by the time they kill him, it's, it's much more likely it's about being too too closely intertwined with him and dependent on him. And he has way too much influence, especially now that the rumors of him being Jewish are so widespread, you know, then they're just, they're just killing an occultist, right? I mean, it, or a Jew it's, they just, they don't kill other Jews who are famous in 1933. Right. Sure. Um, and they don't go after other occultists and kill them in that year. So clearly it shows you how embarrassed they were by this relationship. Anyway, and the so possibility, and, and the possibility that he knew that they were going to set fire to the Reichstag. I, I'm actually exactly. not to go too far down into this rabbit hole because this is more, um, you know, I, I guess mainstream. But I'm really surprised that there is still a school of thought that the Nazis didn't set fire to the Reichstag. It seems pretty obvious that they did to me. Well, but you know, with the evidence, there's no smoking gun, so to speak. The the um, Van der Lubbe was underneath and did more or less confess. It did look like he wanted to set fire to the Reichstag. It doesn't look like he could have done it on his own. It's more like the Kennedy assassination, right? It's a little but, too convenient because right after Hitler other, I mean, takes total yeah. power. Well, but not direct. So what happens yeah. within a, a day or two, because it's a communist, they say, okay, we're banning the communist party. Now, what's interesting about that is it's four weeks in, they still hadn't even banned the communists, much less the socialists, the liberals, the Catholics. So there is some semi-rule of law, and, and they are kind of searching for excuses. This is, by the way, why you want to get to the present. When people say, oh, we're nowhere near the Nazis yet or Mussolini, it never happens in one day. Right. They're always pushing and testing. They themselves don't know what they can get away with, right? And so there is a debate. I there is a, a colleague of mine, Ben Hett, uh, Harvard uh, graduate, PhD student, um, who wrote a really good book, somewhat popular oriented, where he claims um, the Nazis did know about it. And of course, he was attacked by a lot of. German historians, Britain, German, and American who said, come on, there's no real evidence of that. This is a conspiracy theory. Um, I'm not that interested. I, it's not that I'm not that interested. That's sure. not the point of my book. Right, What's important right. in my mind is that here you've got Hannesen, even in this kind of very controversial and important moment in the early Third Reich, here's Hannesen again popping up. Um, and you're just like, what is this magician, Jewish magician, Charles and have to do? I mean, as I keep pointing out to, to my colleagues for like, aren't you, you know, making more of this? And as I say, find examples of Leon Blum, the leader of the socialists in France who were in power or the, or the, you know, the Democrats in France or Churchill's party or the labor party, 
find even one or two examples of their leaders consistently hiring horror writers or Alistair Crowley or repeating the same things as Alistair Crowley in horror writings in their public speeches or, you know, it's, it's just remarkable the degree to which there's this relationship that just persists between Nazis and this supernatural imaginary. Right. Without attributing everything that happens to supernatural thinking, there is clearly a, a red thread there that has never been systematically kind of, um, yeah, narrated before, right? And that's, that's, these are just more examples of that. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I, I mean, he would have been, I think, even if he hadn't been killed at that particular point, he would have been an embarrassment at some point anyway. Once, and because, he was not a shrinking violet. He had no. I mean, look, four weeks in, he's he's trying to exploit his connection to the party to have this big seance. Um, and by the way, that's true of a lot of these guys. What what you, you got to give credit to these occult leaders uh, and border scientists. They really believed in what they were doing, or they saw it as you know they were they were self promoters. A lot of them refused to just kind of you know, shrink back into the shadows, yeah. which is one reason I think you do have movements against them is they, you know, they're not, they're not towing the party line sometimes. And and that's more important to the Nazis than believing in crazy ideas. Um, yeah. Anyway. And you make the point in the book later on that, you know, the, the gradually there is in a, a the, the Nazis begin to kind of backlash against the occult in, in many ways, um, even though that they're, they have this basis in occultism themselves. Like, I mean, they go after a lot of these, these same guys and, and, and they went after the Freemasons really hard as well. Well, so, I mean, again, again, we're only going to be able to get in this superficially. First yeah. of all, they never, there's no systematic, um, attempt that all Nazi, um, ministries and all Nazi leaders support to eliminate occultism. What you have is kind of piecemeal efforts between 33 and 37, no more or less serious than their attempts to coordinate the churches, I would argue. Yeah. Um, where, with which they have a kind of tacit working relationship, but don't want to kind of challenge their authority. Right. Um, and you have many Nazis, Hess, Himmler, Dare, um, Ollendorf already in those first four years, Robert Lye, explicitly saying, you know, this stuff is fascinating, uh, biodynamic agriculture, um, parapsychology, dowsing, Hitler hires a dowser to check the Reich Chancellery. So there's clearly no wholesale rejection of these ways of thinking. In 37, and I argue, I, I found this in the archives, other people have noted that 37 is when they make their first efforts in any kind of coordinated way to suppress occultism. But I note a number of things that are interesting about that. One, it looks like the main reason for that is a Nazi police commissar who was also one of the few practicing debunkers in the Weimar Republic is really frustrated. He's part of this circle called the Ludendorff Circle, many of whom are themselves kind of esoteric thinkers who have this weird pagan religious idea. It's Matilda Ludendorff, Eric Ludendorff's wife, who, who leads it. But they do hate occultism, which they see as a kind of rival doctrine that's not as serious as their German faith movement. And he's a member of that group, and he is start writing letters, like many of them, to the authorities, to the Gestapo and the criminal police, 
saying, why aren't you doing something, right? These, they're running around, these occultists, these astrologers. And finally, Artur Neba, who's some people know, he's a famous leader of one of the Einsatz group, and later on it kills all the Jews. He's the head of the criminal police, and he kind of forwards this on to Heydrich. And Heydrich, who is um, fairly hostile to occultism, all sectarianism, Reinhard Heydrich, I argue, just doesn't like anything that challenges the party line. Mm. Could be Jehovah's Witnesses, could be Catholics, could even be some pagan, r- racially pure Germanic idea. If it's not doing whatever the Nazis, the Third Reich says is kosher, he wants to suppress it or, or you know, ban it. And he gets this and he's like, yeah, this guy's right. What's going on here? So he forwards it to Himmler. And what's fascinating is Himmler agrees, yeah, you know, maybe we should move against these charlatans. And the popular occultists, you know, like Hanneson, who sit on a street corner and, ex- and exploit poor old ladies and, and don't have any real insights into the beyond. But we don't want to ban scientific astrology. And Neba writes this great letter, which he's already negotiated with Heydrich and Himmler, or between Heydrich and Himmler, basically saying that you're doing scientific as- astrology or border science. That's great. Go ahead. But popular stuff, we're going we're gonna to try and eliminate. Of course, there's no real line between the two. Neither is a real science. So what ends up happening after this brief crackdown, which also occurs in some other units, is nothing, right? Almost no one's arrested. No one's killed. It's only in 41 when Hess, the deputy Fuhrer, flees to Britain. Right. And Goebbels and Rosenberg and Heydrich, who all don't like him and Rosenberg, Heydrich, and Bormann all want to move against occultism because they consider it sectarian, just like religion. Bormann hated the church, too. So did Heydrich, right? So did Rosenberg. They're like, hey, he did it because he's an occultist. Now, everyone knew he was an occultist. Himmler was an occultist by any stretch of the imagination. No one had done anything about it. Now that he left, they're like, oh, okay, Hitler's pissed. It's embarrassing. He's like, fine, whatever you want. (laughs) It lasts for like six weeks. For six weeks, they do arrest a bunch of occultists. They confiscate their libraries. Um, it's not just astrologers. It's anthroposophists and all this stuff. But guess what happens within six to eight weeks? The same pattern. Himmler, Ollendorf, other SS leaders like, well, you know, I don't want to burn all this stuff. It's such great science they're doing here. Why don't we put it in our own library or give it to this parapsychologist at Strasbourg who's such a good Nazi and let him study it, Hans Bender. And, you know, and then... Um, the minister of the interior is giving a speech honoring Paracelsus and Heydrich's like, what's going on here? And, and, you know, no one does anything about it. And soon they're hiring these people to, as you know, from later of the book to find Mussolini. So the two most famous incidents of them actually cracking down peter out very quickly because they themselves are conflicted about what constitutes popular charlatanism and what's real scientific. Right. Occultism. Yeah, like the right? adi- the attitude Which, is. By the way, is what defines occultism per se in border science. Like going sure. back to the late nineteenth century, they're all accusing each other of being charlatans because there is no empirical basis for what they're doing. So the way you win an argument with someone who does something different is say, "Well, you're not a real scientist. I am." So all the Nazis end up doing, argue, is reproducing the same internal debates over what's real scientific occultism and what's not that the occultists have been doing for 40 years, that people in different religious sects also do, right? Methodists versus Baptists. It doesn't mean they're hostile to that way of thinking. Right. That's just what people do when there's no scientific basis for evaluating reality. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, 
Right. So back to yours a little bit. Um, I think it's important to understand this, um, the, the concept of vampires, um, and and also, um, you know, since you know it's October, we might as well talk about this. The the werewolves mm-hmm. and uh, that concept, though, is of vampires is very different in this kind of exactly. Aryan Germanic um, concept. And what's a, how did they see vampires being? Yeah, yeah. What did they see right. vampires as, as actually being to them? Right. So this is, so yeah, and this is fascinating too. And this has a long history that goes back to the 19th century. So obviously German speaking central Europe was bumped up against Slavic Jewish populations in the East in ways that wasn't the case with Belgium or Britain or France. Um, they're much closer to the traditions of vampirism where it's actually considered authentic. You have a lot of accounts in the 18th century, like Austrian officials, some of the most famous accounts of vampirism are going to investigate this stuff in Serbia or Poland or somewhere. And like these people really think they saw vampires. Maybe they did. I don't know. Here's my report. Um, so there's already a different relationship, a more kind of intrinsic relationship between German speaking folklore and that, and that area of the world and the places where vampires and also werewolves. So I would argue, and they would argue that werewolves are more intrinsically a Germanic Nordic folkloric figure. And while in Britain and, and France, it's, vampires are kind of romantic figure in the 19th century, you know, anti-heroes, you know, Lord Byron, you know, the, the, Polidori writes about um, the tragic hero vampire um, based on Lord Byron. You've got Coleridge's stories of, you know, um, what is it, Christabel and Sheridan Lafanu. You've got all this stuff. In Germany, by the late 19th century, vampires are very clearly this kind of um, um, kind of corrupt, racially impure, degenerate monster they associate with Slavic and Jewish culture in the East, Mm -hmm. which makes incursions into the Germanic world. Meanwhile, the tradition of the werewolf by the late 19th, 20th century is this kind of noble figure who represents the kind of most, the greatest strength of kind of masculine nature-driven Germanic heroism. And while werewolves can do horrible things and they can be beasts, they're usually good men at heart who live in the countryside and mean well and often protect travelers. And um, and it's often linked to, you know, Odin's berserkers and would put on, you know, pelts to become greater warriors. So there's this there's already this folkloric tradition with the supernatural imaginary people who weren't Nazis and didn't want to kill Jews still were aware of this kind of difference between the, the Slavic Jewish vampire and the noble werewolf. And what's fascinating then is to see how that becomes deployed in the twenties and thirties by, by focus groups and Nazis who, who like to use the term werewolf. You know, Hitler loves it. He has a headquarters. He calls the werewolf headquarters. And mm-hmm. Right on the border of the Slavic lands, right? The, the, the wolves, the wolves layer, is that was? That's a different yeah. one. Okay, that's the wolf. The wolf layer is just named after a wolf. He loves wolves. He actually has a separate headquarters called the Werewolf Headquarters. Mm. Believe it or not, um, uh, 
There's Operation Werewolf that one of the SS leaders carries out to eliminate Poles and Jews from part of the Ukraine. There's uh, a Secret Service group that has a werewolf division or, or, or um, operation that they carry out. There's the werewolf movement, the paramilitary, many of whom are, are Nazis and join the Nazi party, um, who are all about defending German race and, and mystical folkish tradition against the Jews and the communists. And they're getting that from earlier traditions of werewolves, like guerrilla warriors in the woods. And then what happens in 44 when everything's collapsing? They create a werewolf movement, Himmler, Goebbels, and Hitler all agree, which is going to be these noble warriors who fight to the death to prevent Allied occupation and Bolshevik um, corruption from invading in Germany. Meanwhile, we come back to the vampire trope. Not only have the Jews been associated with vampires within the Nazi literature, and we can talk more about that as this kind of supernaturally powerful, disease-ridden force that corrupts Aryans, both literally and figuratively, their society and their bodies. Hitler talks about it in Mein Kampf. But when ethnic Germans are fleeing Serbia in the east and other parts of Eastern Europe, many of them are reporting, and it's fascinating that these reports are taken by an SS folklorist, that they were being attacked by Slavs working for the, for the communists who were transforming into blood-drinking vampires and saying they needed Swabian blood and they wanted to rip apart Germans, right? So you literally have, at the end of the war, this kind of end game, and this is all documented, the Nazi leaders creating a group of werewolf partisans who are going to fight to the death and destroy and murder allies and communists. And claims by Germans, they're being attacked by communist partisans who are turning into vampires. If, if there isn't a better literal illustration of this, this folkloric tradition, werewolves are good Germanic, Nordic, Aryan heroes. Vampires are evil, Slavic, Jewish, corrupt invaders. I don't know what, what is, but I mean, that's, that's documented. That's not Trevor Ravenscroft speculation. I've got, <laughs> I've got the archival sources. Yeah. Um, for, for both of those things. So is there a yeah. link? Cause you do, you do mention this and I, I, I want to go on to talk about auto Ron and the Anna Nerba, but, uh, you do mention this a little bit about, you know, uh, Nosferatu, the film, um, mm-hmm. and, and just German expressionism, uh, in Toto, that, 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 you know, genre of cinema, uh, you know, I have always kind of thought I've, I've studied a lot about, that particular i'm a i'm into that kind of that kind of german filmmaking of the 20s into the 30s uh before hitler comes into power and i've always thought about this as almost like a counter force to hitler because a lot of those directors did leave when he took over but uh you know you do make a point that there is a lot of that in german expressionism as well that that you know especially in nosferatu this evil menacing you know, force from the east right. to the plague. Um, you know that that's exactly. that's all in there with the rats. Which is played up much more strongly in that version of Dracula than in a lot of the Anglo-American versions. Right. Yeah. Where Dracula is a little more swashbuckling and and a, and it's a ambivalent figure. Right here, he's this really disgusting corpse with putatively Jewish features or Slavic features. Um, but but before we get to that, I just want to make this general uh, observation about expressionism. The reason I use supernatural imaginary and the reason 
expressionism can both be this highly modern cosmopolitan um, cultural movement, which has lots of Jewish screenwriters and, and left-wing directors, sure. just as it can be the dark subconscious of the Germans as, as Siegfried Krakauer and Lothar Eisner, two famous Weimar film theorists argue is, you know, a, a broader, like supernatural imaginary that's both explicit and, and in some ways subconscious can be both, right? It can, it, it, the people who are Jewish and left wing who participated in it didn't take that next step. Freud himself notes this, right? So mm-hmm. Freud and Jung are best friends. Freud's very uncomfortable, as I point out in the book, with a lot of this supernatural thinking because he sees how easily it can, it, can, it as and Theodore Adorno, the famous left wing sociologist, how easily the logic behind these arguments can be used to justify eliminating Jews or or decrying liberalism or science, right? Jung, who's not Jewish and is fascinated by this, is like, oh no, it's it's not that harmful. In fact, it's fascinating and and it really does get at what what you know Germans are thinking. And so expressionism can be both. It can be both this highly modern, in some ways cosmopolitan artistic movement, and it can represent, as some historians and film scholars said, a darker desire for a less rational, more supernatural, more authoritarian world. And that's that's not my argument. Many, many people have made the argument. It's just, I want to point out the ways in which that fits into my idea of a supernatural imaginary that can be exploited. You know, Hitler loves uh, Fritz Lang's Nibelungen movies. Fritz yeah. Lang was not a right-wing thinker. No, he wasn't. <laughs> but the Nibelungen are great. And the movie, you know, in Hitler's mind, shows these evil, ugly Jewish dwarves and, and you know, Nordic heroes fighting them. So, you know, art is, is subjective. And the and I, I, don't, I don't think, the, you know, um, Max Schreck was trying to, it was anti-Semitic and trying to portray a Jew when he played Nosferatu. Right. But subconsciously, clearly, it plays on a lot of those stereotypes. He is coming from the East. He is associated with rats and, and superhuman strength and corrupting blonde women. And if you are an anti-Semite and focused thinker raised in Ariosophy and all these other things, you're going to view that movie in that way. And that reinforces your views and maybe pushes you closer to the Nazis, right? And that's that's the argument I would make. Yeah, it made me think of it in a, in a kind of a, a, a slightly different light because, you know, the rats imagery... Uh, the Jewish, I mean the um, the propaganda film about the about the Jews, um, I, uh, that uh, exactly. Goebbels put right. out. You know his imagery of the rats and the vermin, and you know all that. Uh, no, exactly. That's that's what I'm saying. And Jews were already associated with that. Um, you have right wing thinkers associating Jews with rats before World War One, and then you have this, if you look at the propaganda poster for Nosferatu in, in the book, I have then the propaganda poster for the Eternal Jew. And the way yeah. the, Jew, the kind of greenish-hued, monstrous-looking Jew and the way that Nosferatu looks, very similar. Yeah. I mean, whether that was conscious or not. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's that's very fascinating. I think there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole book that could be done on that. <laughs> that's a well, and interesting they do write facet. a whole pamphlet in yeah. in forty two called um, "The Jewish Vampire Is Turning the World into Chaos" that Rosenberg's office puts out. So they literally, even late in the war, like the Jews are vampires taking over the world. The Second World War is a result of them, and it's this I, I quote it at length in the book. 
And that's around the same time that Rosenberg, one of his subordinates, writes a dissertation, finishes his dissertation on werewolves in German history and how positive they are. So again, there are a lot of examples of this, um, vampires and werewolves that come up uh, in the book and obviously in German history. But I'll, I'll let you move on to the next. Uh, uh, yeah, topic. Otto Rahn and the uh, Ananerba, the uh, search for the Holy Grail. Uh, this is really the first context that I remember because I, I had a I had a professor um, who was retired in college and uh, he talked a lot about Otto Rahn and uh, this the, you know the idea about the um, the Holy Grail and the Cathars and um, which we were discussing the Cathars. And what was his field? Uh, he, he was, was a, he was a, he was an historian. Uh, he had actually. Oh, he had actually uh, translated a book, I think, from French about uh, cultism in the Third Reich. Interesting. And we were actually talking about so, the Cathars the other day um, in kind of like a, how George R.R. R. Martin in Game of Thrones bases the Lord of Light religion on the Cathars. Yeah, they're kind of Manichaean. Yeah. Uh, um, I didn't know that. I honestly, I mean, that's accurate. The 14, I mean, to the degree that it's late medieval Europe, written in France, then that's when the Cathars are running around. But, um, well, first of all, that's fascinating. And I, I just want to say this in all humility, right? Like I'm, while collectively, I think what I've done is very original and there's probably, you know, hundreds of sources I cite that no one's ever cited before, as you're pointing out. And as I, I give credit in the intro, there is a lot of stuff out there. Maybe it's not the most rigorous history, but there are people who have written about these things or, oh, yeah. or were right about the general themes. They just didn't corroborate it well or, or contextualize it. Um, Otto Rahn, you know, there's a lot of people who've heard of this guy. There are books on him. Um, and like a lot of the things I touch on in this book, while I think I've corroborated it pretty well, you could do a whole scholarly biography of Otto Rahn. No one's done that, I think, terribly well. There's one book I cite pretty copiously that has like a good biography of him and then a bunch of his sources. Um, it's in German. But the, the point is, um, I'm not the first to bring this up, but I do try to contextualize it in this larger idea of a supernatural imaginary. And Otto Rahn was a real guy, right? Um, a philologist. Um Gay, not particularly Nazi, but he was immersed in this kind of occult thinking and went to France to, to research the Cathars and their supposed relationship with the old Indo-Aryan pagan religion that all Germanic people shared. Came up with some theories on that, which overlapped with what Steiner and Lanson Liebenfels and a lot of other thinkers in the late 19th century have been saying about Atlantis and, and Indo-Aryan religion. And his first book, which came out in 33, um, Crusade Against the Grail, um, which is about the Cathars and that kind of Orarian religion, came to Himmler's attention through uh, Karl Maria Villagut. Um, and they were fascinated with the idea of the Grail and an Orarian religion and Indo-Aryan race and potentially kind of superpowers that could be recovered. And and so they hired, basically, they offered him stipends to work for the Ananerba, which you mentioned, the Institute for Ancestral Research, which is Himmler's, the SS's kind of scientific research institute. And with their money, he expanded on his ideas and in 37 came out with a book called Lucifer's Court, 
um, which basically argues that these these putative heretics who the Catholic Church tried to eliminate were really Luciferians, were practicing an Urarian religion, you know, and the so-called witches were kind of, you know, pre-high priestesses of Germanic culture. Um, and Lucifer is a god of light, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because they were Germanic and noble and Nordic and awesome, the Catholic Church, which was Christian and infiltrated by Jews, wanted to destroy them. And, you know, this book tapped into ideas that Himmler and Rosenberg and Dare and other Nazis already shared, that the Catholic Church had been taken over by Jews, that they wanted to eliminate German culture, that Christianity was this weak kind of watered down Judaism meant to keep Aryans at bay. So Jews control the world. So they seized on this. Ron, you know, was a, was a tepid Nazi and drank a lot and tried to suppress his homosexuality and got in trouble a lot with authorities. Himmler kept basically bailing him out. Eventually he killed himself when he decided he didn't want to marry a woman just for appearances sake. Um, but that didn't stop Himmler and the SS who kept publishing his books and giving them to soldiers at the front um, because they really believed in this stuff. What was the Holy Grail to Otto Ron? What did he think that it was? Yeah, as far as I can tell from what I've read, and again, I mean, there are probably theologians, anthropologists, historians of India and, and theosophy who could articulate this better. It was, it was either, it either represented a religious tradition that came from the Indo-Aryan East. It was a real grail that was, that did have kind of mystical powers, though in that tradition, Jesus was an Aryan, right? you know, <laughs> the, a version of Balder and from a lost Aryan tribe. He wasn't Jewish. He rejected the Jews. That's the whole basis of Christianity. Um, it may have some of them, some of the, the folkish thinkers believe in this idea that you see in the um, in the Dan Brown books that it, it represented a kind of fertility symbol and that women, you know, as, as, as earth mothers and high priestesses, which Himmler and Dari and others believe that the reason they went after the women is the women were the high priestesses. They were these noble, blonde, magical leaders in, in, of Germanic pagan culture. And so uh, the evil Christian church wanted to eliminate them so they couldn't have children and called them witches. Um, and then I saw something that it's a dove that flew from Northern India to Europe, bringing with it, you know, um, some kind of mystical, mystical traditions or something. Um, I'll be very honest. I didn't get into the metaphysics of it very sure. much at all, other than, the grail is something that needs to be fixed. It's possibly a material thing that needs to be found either because it has great meaning as a relic or has magical powers. It's not clear how many believe in one or the other. They're just fascinated with it. And it symbolizes for them these connections. You know, Otto Rahn and I, and I guess Himmler um, as well. I mean, they were, and others, I mean, they were fascinated with the, with Catharism and Gnosticism, uh, the duality, but they put their own kind of Aryan bent to it all. 
Well, and this is, so there's all sorts of larger debates in the historiography that German historians have been debating about the Third Reich for years that I try to, when, when I can, I try to touch on them and contribute to them. One of them is about the religious traditions of Nazism, right? And, I, and, and ultimately, after eight years of research on this, I already had an opinion about Nazi relationship to Christianity, paganism. My argument would be they don't have a doctrine of their own. Yeah. The Nazis were both not rigorous enough as a movement. They also were too diverse religiously and ideologically. So what you have is a general consensus, and here's where I am taking a stand against a, a few colleagues of mine. They they did not like conventional Christianity. It's very hard to find any Nazi leader right. who thinks that Christianity as practiced by the mainstream Catholics or mainstream Protestants, meaning including the Old Testament, right, is anything that's productive in the long term for the Third Reich. They'll tolerate it if you join the army. Lutherans are better than Catholics, but they all pretty much saw it as a weak religion that helped keep the Aryan down. They preferred Shintoism and Hinduism and Buddhism, very clearly many of them, to Christianity and certainly Judaism. The question is, what did they really want? And I would say it, 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 it clusters around a kind of Aryo-Germanic paganism, which is more Nordic in origin and ties back to you know Thor and Odin and these kinds of things. And overlaps with a more a broader kind of Indo-Aryan proto-Hinduism or or kind of spirituality, which they link to Hinduism, Buddhism, and Shintoism. And it's not systematic. When you because you had su- suggested like they they took Manichaeanism and they Manichaeanism is just one element in all of this, right? I there's whole books about how the Nazis are all millenarian. Or they're all, they all believe in a religion of nature. And I accept all of that and none of it, right? I mean, clearly, they're searching for an alternative to Christianity, something that's not transcendental, right? They hate this transcendental aspect of Christianity, that you'll get your just reward in the afterlife if you just live a good Christian life now. For them, that's useless. It's useless pragmatically because you're not, you know, fighting for your blood and soil and tradition, you know, your culture in the, in, and having lots of racially pure children, which should be the goal of the here and now, which is one reason they like Shintoism, right? But also metaphysically, they believe in a religion of action that's tied to nature and the blood and, and focused Germanic um, reality, Valkyries and Thor and getting in fights with Midgard serpents and turning to werewolves. That's much more exciting for them than and Christ, Judaified Christianity. So there are elements they share. They, they don't like transcendental Christianity. They want a religion of the here and now, of the this world, as they put it. Um, a lot of e- Eastern religions, which have aspects of, you know, the here and now, practicing yoga and tantric and warrior priests and Hinduism, they like all of that stuff, but I don't think they have a systematic way of negotiating it. So what you have is, is a lot of attempts to re-inscribe alternative religions uh, as opposed to Christianity. I don't, I don't know if that's satisfying to you, but I just don't see a systematic way that they're trying to create their own religion. Sure. They're, that's where I disagree with lots of other scholars. You know, they have their own political religion. They're, as I say, millenarians. They're all pagans in some right. clear way. 
Right. I just think that they're experimenting with all these things. That's that's the one thing that I hear. One yeah. thing that I hear a lot is uh, people will say, "Well, you know, uh, when uh, are they? You know, people will try to say that Hitler was a Christian, and and uh, they'll point out the Gottmit uns on the on the uh, the hat, you know, the little death head Gottmit uns." But you know, right. my 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 counter to that is like you know I don't think you know they they really wanted to replace Christianity. They just didn't really have anything to replace it with. What the Gottman Uns? I mean, are they ref, do you were they trying to appeal to a Christian sensibility on that? Or well, well, here's what I don't get about all of that. And I have a colleague, Richard Steigman Gall, who's argued very strongly that the Nazis are very much working in a Christian idiom. Number one, if you're raised Christian, every Nazi was raised at a time in the late 19th century that everyone was still Christian. Now, not terribly believing, or we wouldn't have all this other stuff, but they were technically raised Christian. Consciously and subconsciously, you're still going to use terms like God. You're still going to think, as, as Himmler said explicitly, he was impressed by the Catholic Church and the Jesuits, the way they could kind of push their beliefs and convert people. And they all yeah. wore these black uniforms. They were so fanatic. Yeah. He modeled so the SS off the Jesuits or, or the Freemasons or the, yeah. you know, orders of the new Templar. But the point is when all those groups were emulating each other, right. In the late medieval period, and early modern period, my, my point is obviously in some kind of broader discursive and psychological sense, they're all very much aware of, either working within or against a Christian idiom, right? Even their anti-Semitism wouldn't have existed without the conflicted relationship between Jews and Christians that's unique to Europe. So in that broader sense, of course, there's Christian elements in the way they describe things. Their millenarianism and their Manichaeanism may have inflections that are Gnosticism that map onto heretical Christian movements. But the, the best way to put it is there's not a single mass movement in the modern era that was as actively, I mean, unless you just take secular movements like communism, right, that was as actively hostile in trying to transcend Christianity as the Nazis. So while they may have had to make concessions to it because the two big churches and traditions in Germany were Christian, like they were everywhere, while some of them may have still baptized their kids. None of the leading Nazis I know, but I'm sure there were SS officers somewhere who didn't do the pagan things that Himmler wanted. Um, they're clearly hostile to it as a, as a broader institution and doctrine and theology, as you say. And they avoid even talking about Jesus. I mean, anyone who's been around people who are devout Christians, the thing that defines them is not mentioning God, because the Muslims and Jews also talk about God. It's Jesus. And they have such a conflicted relationship with Jesus and, and are so unwilling, other than as a historical figure, right? Potentially Aryan historical figure, they might mention Jesus for both propagandistic and authentic, in their mind, scholarly reasons. But they're not invoking Jesus anywhere as, a, as in terms of the Son of God who died for their sins. And that's essential to being Christian. The closest you get to that is the German Christian movement, where the Nazis basically say, if you get rid of the Old Testament and denude Christianity completely of most of its heritage, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll kind of sponsor you to some extent. And they don't even like the German Christians, but the German Christians have betrayed Christianity to such a great extent 
you know, so I, I just find it odd that there's an attempt on the one hand to claim they're Christian in any, in any way that matters. Yeah. Right. And number two, to claim conversely that there's one overarching religious doctrine that defines everything they do. Yeah. I just don't see that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, in the time that we have left, Dr. Kurlander, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what this means for now. You know, what can we learn from from all this? Right. So, um, and let me reflect reflect on this by pointing out: I've, the book's now been it's been out for three or four months, and it's been reviewed in some major periodicals. And initially, the Times of London and and the Washington Post and their Spiegel and um, what what I guess conservatives in our country would call mainstream media or putatively liberal media, all kind of pointed out or seized on what I wrote in the epilogue about how this kind of thinking, which facilitated what we might call a, a right wing alt right fascist movement in the twenties and thirties, is also intrinsic to alt right thinking today. Right, that that people who think in conspiratorial terms about Muslims or Jews or Hispanic people flooding the border and destroying their culture and race and soil and folkish traditions who want to take their country back but can't quite single out who's at fault in any appreciable way that reject my, you know mainstream science is too complicated and and not authentic and want to find alternative sciences who believe in aliens and area 51, that all of this is its own. This is my argument at the epilogue and a lot of the reviews seized on that at the end, that this is a form of supernatural imaginary that facilitates the alt-right movement in France and the Netherlands in Greece and Hungary and America. Right. And I still believe that I still believe there's that connection. Um, What's interesting is I also then got a review in the National Review, right, the leading conservative periodical a couple of weeks ago. It was a wonderful review, and, and, but predictably, and he didn't make a big deal out of it, he simply pointed out what frustrated him. He doesn't disagree with my argument or epilogue that this clearly helped facilitate Nazism and may, in fact, help facilitate some of the crazier right-wing movements today. But his argument was, well, left-wing movements are also supernatural in their thinking and irrational. And even though they claim to be secular and materialist and empirical, if you look at, you know, Stalin and Mao, and you'll find many elements of supernatural thinking. And so I just wanted to be fair and bring that up. I don't agree. I don't think the left, certainly not the left as construed in the West. Like uh, I don't consider Stalin's communism or Mao's communism as, as heavily embedded in Western thinking as many conservatives would like to claim it is, right? Whenever they're warning us against liberalism taking over and the state controlling our lives, they're always citing societies that are not our own as, as what can happen, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do understand what that. happened in Britain and France. Yeah. And, but I bring that up to say that my argument is this kind of thinking facilitates right-wing, folkish, alt-right, fascist movements. And, and I don't think, um, this is just a historically anachronistic, um, phenomena that occurred in the twenties and, and can't occur again. I think the same trends are occurring now, but I raised this, this point that I, um, that the national review raised that, well, 
putatively, the left is, is prone to the same kinds of thinking, conspiratorial, supernatural, what have you. So we'll, I'll let you follow up on that. I just wanted to give that as a kind of prelude. I don't know if the left would be, as you, I mean, you do make a good point because there is a Russian cultural context with Stalin and Mao. There's a Chinese cultural context, even though they were essentially atheist. I mean, I made the point before in another show that it still didn't keep Stalin from trundling out the Roman, I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church at a certain point when he really needed it to unite the people. Uh, that could be more pragmatism than anything else. But, uh, you know, I, I think that in some respects, um, there's not a much like supernatural thinking on the left, but there could be a conspiratorial thinking on the left. That's just my right. kind of thought about it. Because right. generally, right. you yeah. know, they don't go for the supernatural, the supernatural stuff, but there could still be a tendency to engage in conspir- conspiracy theory, just like on the right. Yeah, and then what I would say, I mean, what the real lesson of this is that for democracy to thrive, I mean, the default is supernatural thinking or authoritarian thinking or anti-democratic thinking. For most of human history, including the last hundred years in many contexts, having a vibrant liberal democracy where people with different points of view can have informed conversations, argue, have elections and then come up with policies that represent whoever won or compromise between the different sides. That's a relatively rare phenomenon. We take it for granted in America because we think that's what we've always had and it's always worked. And what really scares me, I mean, the Europeans haven't had it as long as we have, many of them. Even the French have had five republics punctuated by (laughs) proto-fascist dictatorships. And and then you take the French away, you've got the British, but they've they were a monarchy that was pretty restrictive for most of their modern history. So it's just not that easy. And Americans don't recognize that. And, and fundamental to having a functioning democracy is secular, empirically based debates on economy, society, politics, the kind that the Germans worked really hard to have in the 20s. And we're doing a pretty good job of it, mm-hmm. except... The supernatural measure, which I would argue is so widespread, you combine that with the genuine socioeconomic crises and political instability and, and lack of faith in, in the new government and the violence and the Versailles Treaty, it's pretty easy to see why they're, and then you get a depression where they have 35% unemployment, right? You yep. can see why that caused their democracy to collapse. What scares me today is we have similar kinds of arguments about the world that are not based in empiricism. And we've got 5% unemployment and a, and a stock market that's three times what it was seven or eight years ago. And you still have people talking in desperate terms or rational terms about the world coming to the end and the, the need to do X, Y, or Z, which is totally counter to our constitution, liberal democratic tradition, pluralism, being an immigrant country. And they think they're patriotic. They think they're Americans. That's not Americans. That's what fascists do, right? And fascists draw on faith-based thinking. It's, it's, it's odd for me as a historian, and it's, I'm not saying, I mean, it is predominantly on the right. There are a lot of good conservatives, even what we would say very conservative libertarians who recognize exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As well, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, that's not being, a, it's not American to always vote for one party, no matter how crazy they sound, how hostile to science, how much they're 
making faith-based religious arguments, vilify the other side who disagrees with you. And and this is what I'm getting at. It's true there are members of what we would call the left, not that America really has a left in a conventional sense, who are just as likely to turn off when someone who disagrees with them makes an argument. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's as problematic. I think if there is a party that is open to nuance, contradiction, public infighting, where they actually disagree empirically with each other, claim to want to work with other groups if they're going to be empirical and compromised. It's, it's our Democrats, as, as weak as they are, and the Republicans are really, at this point, um, fighting against what I would call a proto-fascist alt-right movement, which they're almost afraid of. They're afraid to call out. And that worries me, right? In Germany, they got 13% of the vote. Our country, they got 40-something percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I think this kind of supernatural thinking facilitates that. Well, it, yeah, it's definitely food for thought. I mean, uh, I, I do agree with that assessment, and I want to, do, want to say something here, too. I think social media has made things worse. You know, Rob and I have talked about this over and over again on the show. And I mean, it's just, I think it's exacerbated the situation. I mean, I've thought about this too. Like we don't have a serious unemployment crisis in this country. So where is all this strife coming from? And we don't have a major geopolitical threat. Right. You and I remember the cold war. Right. There were period, if you take like take the late seventies when you've got the Brezhnev doctrine, so the communists for the first time, right? For thirty years, we were the ones starting all the wars using our own soldiers. You know, the communists could just kind of sit back and let the local populations say we hate capitalism, and we would have to get involved. But now you've got Brezhnev running around Middle East, Afghanistan. You've got uh, um, South America. At the same time, you've got twelve, fifteen percent uh, inflation rate. unemployment. You've got the threat of nuclear destruction at any minute, Mm -hmm. late 70s, early 80s. That was a time for people to lose it a little bit, right? And you still had relatively rat, you had the SALT treaties, Nixon going to China, Ford and the Geneva Accords, Carter, Middle Eastern peace. Even Reagan, after a lot of nasty rhetoric, went and met with Gorbachev and said positive things about, you know, different ethnic groups. Despite all of the real reason for crisis, you had both sides, so to speak, operating on a relatively statesman-like rational level. We don't have any of that right now. There is no existential threat. Geopolit- We're not going to get blown to smithereens and have the whole world end unless we do something really stupid and escalate in China that leads to Russia shooting new. I don't know what could happen. Terrorists have never killed more than a few thousand people at a time at the worst. You know, if, if we just had a, a, a country that was civilized the way other countries are in terms of our healthcare system, traffic laws, gun laws, we probably would have hundreds of thousands fewer death, deaths a year that would dwarf any deaths from terrorism. And yet you have people who are going through existential crises mm-hmm. that are way beyond, it seems to me, what people in everyday life were thinking in the 70s and 80s. That's scary. Where is that coming from? Supernatural, conspiratorial, post-Cold War kind of lack of spirituality thinking. I don't know how else to explain it. Same in the Middle East. Look at where this resurgence of fundamentalist Islam 
in Iran and yeah. Iraq and every, it's all, it's all post, you know, late seventies, early eighties, just like here, the evangelical movement and all this stuff, cold war ends, this kind of return of the repressed. There's something going on there. I wonder if it's, it's not conducive to democracy, to liberal individualism, to, to compromise, um, to science. I wonder if it's because people feel powerless in society and they turn to the supernatural aspects. Yes. I wonder like if, I wonder if to the 1930s. That's I my wonder point. if that's what it is. It, you, you look at, you look at modernization from the mid 18th, the late 19th was relatively uneven. You had countries like Germany that were barely industrialized in the 1840s and 50s. I mean, Britain it occurred rather rapidly. And by the 1890s, within a generation, a world that still looked much like it did in the Middle Ages in many parts of Europe has huge railroads, you know, railroad uh, uh, trains steaming through at every minute and skyscrapers and planes and automobiles and Poles and Jews flooding in from the East, taking your jobs and running the banks and building department stores and traditional religion being thrown out the window. If you think about the 1890s to the 1930s and you punctuate it with the first Great Depression from 1873 to 1896 and then the World War, yeah. you can start to see why, you know, what's going on now. I completely agree with you. I mean, that's my point is we're repeating that period and mm. people do not have the historical kind of um, awareness to reflect on why they're so paranoid, why they're so angry, where that can lead when they make these stupid decisions at the voting booth. They're not learning from history. I don't care. You want to vote for a conservative, vote for John Kasich or Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush is moderate. John Kasich is more conservative. They're both completely rational, experienced individuals who would make good. Why, you know, this is what I talk to my conservative friends. You can't say Trump's the only one you could vote for. Your party had Kasich and Bush and Christie and all these other perfectly viable alternatives, Rand Paul, if you're a libertarian, and you chose overwhelmingly the nut jobs, right? <laughs> why is that? Why do the nut jobs keep winning and primarying all the rational conservatives? Yeah. Because that party has become much like the folkish right in the 20s and 30s. They can't even articulate what their policies are anymore. When they have a chance to do a policy, because it's not based on empirical reality, they argue with each other, have no real solution to a problem, and then start trying to find an external internal enemy again, right? Whether it's health care, whether it's tax policy, it's really frightening. Well, I, I wonder what I wonder what happened today i wonder what you know the shooting in las vegas i wonder what the motivations of this person was we we won't know and i you know and social scientists don't like to extrapolate from individuals it doesn't really matter what his motivations were one thing i will say that's a more social scientific observation which may or may not be related is and again this is similar to the 1890s to 1930s so maybe this is apropos if you look, you know, you had socialism from the 1840s, right? Marx, Communist Manifesto. It was very well organized and relatively peaceful. Occasionally, some socialists tried to assassinate a leader like Lenin's brother, tried to kill the czar. 
but they were in unions and they were fighting for rights and they were negotiating. And with really rapid modernization and these huge kind of contradictions between rural and urban and Jews and 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 religious conservatives and whatever, you start to get a lot more violence in the 1890s. Anarchists, radical socialists, right? Here as well. And and people who were alienated tended to resort to violence more often, both individual and collective, than for much of the Victorian era, which was relatively peaceful, mm-hmm. at least domestically in Britain, Germany, France, right? And the 20s was like exponential experience of the war. Germany, you had communists murdering right-wing people. You had many more right-wing people murdering communists and Jews. You know know about all the assassinations that were carried out by by the fascists, right? You had anarchists killing each, you know, all sorts of stuff going on in the 20s and 30s. And I do wonder whether it's supernatural thinking or not, whether Muslim or Christian or the, the way that that alienations being articulated right now or expressed seems to be very much in forms of explicit violence, especially in America. Well, see what, what scares me. I want to make this point. What scares me is that we have a similar situation to what happened in Weimar, Germany, when you had basically the extreme right and the extreme left fighting on the streets. We're seeing that now. We're seeing that happening. And it's like, it really worries me because what was the end result of that? Hitler took over. <laughs> well, it's both better and worse. It's worse because there's nothing at stake right now. We have low unemployment. The stock market's doing well. If the Democrats yeah. weren't de facto a right-wing party and the Republicans a far-right party, they would have already just raised taxes a little bit or cut military spending a little bit or, or you know, made Obamacare a little better. I mean, we're, we're still a very wealthy society with relatively few problems creating our own polarization, right? So that's that's where I would say that's what's worse is God forbid we get a real crisis. What would these idiots do? Right. Yeah. But what's better, better or worse, this is reality. Unless the Republicans completely change our constitution, de facto or de jure is we have a majoritarian system. It's very hard to have radical change through government. And I, I really do believe that most Republicans who get elected, not their voters, Many voters for the Republican Party now, I don't think they actually understand the Constitution, civil liberties, other than gun rights, um, what, what is intrinsic to democracy. I just don't think they believe in it anymore. But even the most conservative representatives do understand a lot of that stuff. And I don't think they're going to create a dictatorship. They're so patriotic. They so want to like our Constitution, even if they keep betraying it. That when push comes to shove, it would take a lot. Now, Trump doesn't care. I don't think Trump has any ideology. He certainly doesn't care about liberal democracy. But even Mike Pence, certainly, you know, Lindsey Graham, McCain, they, they respect our Constitution. And sure. to change it, they need two-thirds of the votes. And most of the Democrats, the Democrats have become the Republicans of 30 years ago. They're the party of the Constitution. They propose moderate, middle-of-the-road solutions like Obamacare, which is 
just what Nixon and later Dole and Gingrich proposed, you know, to solve the healthcare problem. We'll farm it out to private insurers so they can become richer and do it with capitalism, right? God forbid we propose something that every other country does like single payer. It's ironic that the Republicans have portrayed Obamacare as a, as a left-wing solution when it's exactly what they wanted instead of Hillary Care and instead of single payer in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? But that being said, I don't think constitutionally and in terms of our political culture, you could really get fascism. That's why when some of my friends were warning against Trump, Trump, I don't trust one way or the other. He just doesn't care. Um, Bannon probably would love a fascist state. I don't think most Republicans who know better, they might want to, you know, they might not care if there's 30 million poor people starving in the street, but they're still, they still more or less believe in our constitution. Um, and as long as there's lots of rich people get to keep their money, I don't think most conservatives want to destroy our, our constitution the way that right wingers and left wingers in Germany were willing to. Because that constitution was relatively new, and they didn't have a 200-year tradition. Well, Does that make sense? That makes sense, and I hope you're right. I really do. Because <laughs> this stuff keeps me up at night sometimes. <laughs> Rob, is there anything that you wanted to ask or say? Or um, No. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to absorb all of it. This is a lot of, um, a lot of history leading up to, to the formation of the uh, uh, Nazi Germany that I wasn't kind of expecting, which is great. This is... Like, like Adam had said earlier, very academic, very deep stuff. Um, just want to thank you for coming on the show, and I've got to re-listen probably two or three times to absorb a lot of this. <laughs> no, I appreciate it, and uh, you know, yeah, we could. We there's so many different aspects of the book, some which are really don't lend themselves to contemporary analysis, but I really do appreciate how thoroughly you read it, and well, thank you, um, and and definitely linking it to the present. I know. Clearly, I have, I have, I'm very passionate about some of the things going on right now, and I, I do think uh, we could solve it relatively easily. I do think there are a lot of conservatives and a lot of so-called liberals who, who get it, and I worry about our voters. I really vote, worry about the average American who doesn't think this stuff through, who doesn't understand history, and uh, yeah. I hope that we can uh, resolve these things before we get a crisis, because a major terrorist attack, war, economic crisis again. That's, God forbid, who knows who could get elected. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Kurlander, tell everybody where they can get the book. Um, so the, probably the easiest place to get the book would be on um, either the Yale website, Yale University Press, or the uh, Amazon.com, um, where uh, it's available, I think, at a discount, maybe like 24 bucks in hardcover, which isn't bad. And um, I know it's it's also carried at a lot of major booksellers, including Barnes and Noble. So, yeah, I, I do encourage you to go out and get the book. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. And I would love to have you on again. I think there's some other aspects of the book we should talk about as well. But uh, stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out, and we will be right back to close out the show on Conspiranormal. <laughs>
So, before we move on, quick side note. Alcohol does, in fact, help. Okay. Subdue the itching. Okay. I no longer want to remove my own skin. That's good. Wonderful. That's, that's a good thing. I'm glad you don't want to tear your skin off. Yes, because it's been a couple days. Of- you, <laughs> you could, um, you know, if you need to. I mean, you go to work tomorrow, just, you know, bring, have some alcohol with you and when you're driving and... Just, oh, wait, yeah, a little sippy in there. That's not a good idea. Yeah, no. We don't we, ship a can off for sure. <laughs> we don't condone condone that. Yeah, behavior. we don't condone drinking. We don't condone drinking and driving in this conspiranormal. So towards the end of the interview there, you guys were I was having a difficult time following your trains of thought. Um and I'm not even sure how to how to um how to express it, but it was sort of a um, nowadays compared to like twenties and thirties sort of mentality in in Germany, and the uh, spiritual or religious element to it was what I was having a hard time bridging or connecting there. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it was that was confusing me, but I think what he is saying is that you have a time period at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, where things are generally okay in the world. And people were still kind of turning towards the supernatural. And this is what gave rise to, at least in Germany, what was Nazism with the stresses of the first world war and economic crisis. Sure. I, okay. So I got that. I just didn't see, um, how that was intertwined. I suppose the, the leaning towards the supernatural, how that allowed, um, like a very rigid, cause they were sort of, um, not necessarily anti anti spiritual, but they weren't the the most religious of folks. Sure. So, how did that open the door for them? I guess because we're. I, I think in the, I like, think I think in the case in it's specifically in the case of Germany. I think the whole theosophy, anthroposophy. All these different belief systems, occultism, eventually became it became popular because you had all these kind of hidden tensions underneath where people felt that they weren't in control because of modernization and industrialization. Okay, so it, it's more a representation <laughs> of like a um, a cultural unease or mindset than right. it is right a leading t- yeah okay right. That yeah. makes a little more sense that way. Yeah. yeah. You know, the supernatural thing, um, supernatural imaginary, as he says, I mean, I would suffice to say that Dr. Kurlander probably doesn't believe in the supernatural, but he's still willing to come on a show called Conspiranormal. I do believe in the, in the supernatural. Anybody who listens to this show knows that I believe in it. It's just, I think in his case, you kind of, you know, I have to step back a little bit and say, look at it more um, at a uh, kind of more objectively and say these just these beliefs 
and these belief systems contributed to what happened in Germany. That's what that's what he's saying. And I can see some parallels that he's that he's talking about to now. And I can see some that are not as par- not as parallel. You know. Um but yeah, people do need to understand history. They need to understand what has happened before. They really do. Oh, for sure. Um yeah, I would never contend at that point. I was just trying to figure out where I guess the um the more religious aspects of the conversation like wh- how they kind of tied in. Cuz I know okay, for I, I know that our um you know, the, we'll take the, like the Republican Party. Okay. They use the uh they use Christianity a lot of times to to sway people one way or another or you know, to to sure to try to push their goals and agendas and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, there wasn't, I don't think the Nazi party ever picked up on a specific religious movement to try to. No, they didn't. They so almost kind of had their own. That's where I was looking for a tie. I wasn't yeah. looking at the societies in general and their sort of trends and what that might be lie. Yeah. I think he sees a parallel between what's going on in I mean, okay, let's take flat earth theory, for instance. Okay. How has that become so popular now? Sure, a lot of people laugh about it, but there's a lot of people that also believe in it right? religiously, <laughs> that they believe that somehow flat earth theory justifies their belief in the Bible. So it's like this, it, it's, it's, it's a belief in something that is supernatural, to them. It's a supernatural belief system. It's not based on anything scientific, but it's a rejection of science of science. And so these other ideas that were happening in the, um, at the end of the 19th century and on into the 1920s and thirties in Germany, specifically as he's writing about were people latching onto the supernatural because they felt like they didn't have a voice or a say in what was going on in the world. Like they reject materialism and they reject the uh, scientific revolution. They reject modernism. And so you have like a postmodern thing. I mean, like um, flat earth theory is very postmodern. If you really want to think about it, it is not, it is it it has nothing to do with the modern world. Sure. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Um, yes, and and I think that's where I was trying to to lead it to because I think for me I, what I was trying to I think that religion in general, no specific <laughs> religion, but I think I think that it provides something that people who or organisms will say that are capable of, you know analyzing their existence and thereby analyzing the possibility of their lack of existence need in order to continue functioning in a society and yeah. to a certain degree. Like there's this, this level of uh, comfort that comes from a, there's a level of, Oh, right. like it, everything starts to make sense a little better because it's, it's like, okay, I'm not just here for some random reason. I wasn't just created by, um, you know, chaos and whatever I, w- I was put here for a purpose and it, it yeah 
it soothes a lot of unrest. Whereas I think, um, because prior to to the 1920s and 30s, you had a very strong scientific uprising that I think disrupted a lot of the, um, you know, that sort of cultural blanket of almost pacifism and just being okay with the way things are and, and, and finding your place, you know, in the universe that religion can kind of provide. And I think a similar thing has, has happened throughout, you know, the rest of, of this century. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that would tie into it at all, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, but. it would absolutely tie into it. It's like all of a sudden, well, think about, you know, people turning to like, even, even like we can go as far as the ghost hunter shows and things that, yeah, or the, the bizarre stuff that I like to get into, the cryptozoology and anything. I just need a mystery. I need some kind right. of mystery. Right. Because cause science is not going to explain everything. It just isn't. It's not going to explain everything to everybody. Again, though, like for myself, I'm glad that things aren't explained. I'm glad that there are mysteries out there that are not solved. I, you know, I'm glad that we don't know. We we don't really know what ghosts are. I'm glad we don't really know what UFOs are. I'm glad though that all those things aren't explained. Because if they were, it would just be boring. Sure. And that and that's that that I guess is falling in a little bit to the idea of the supernatural imaginary, but I mean it's something that we need as a species. We're we're wired to that to seek the experience, the mysterious and also to seek the divine. But at a certain point you know, like you said there are also forces that are able to manipulate and to use that that human desire for not very good things. Such a sad world sometimes. <laughs> you should play the uh, Tears for Fear song, Bad World. <laughs> The the one in the Donnie Darko version. Oh, the Gary Jules version. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's 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 very complicated. I, I think if you were just if you had a scientific mind bent and you said, Okay, or you're an atheist and you say it'd be very easy for you to say, Yeah, those people are crazy. But if you're not, then you you have to I mean you have to have some kind of, you know, supernatural worldview. And I, and I honestly, the supernatural worldview is more popular than the scientific worldview. It just is, it just is that. However, we can't have, in my opinion, a system of government that is based on a supernatural worldview. Because when you do that, that's called a theocracy. Right. And that's not good. No. And if when you that have, happens, you there have, are people that are going to lose their rights because, to do things. Because the mystery is supposed to be a fluid thing and it's supposed to be different for everybody. Exactly. We're all supposed to be exploring and looking for ideas and, you know. Exactly. If, if you start to um, lock that stuff into a, a governance, that's just... That's crazy. <laughs> that's it's not going to work. Yeah. But you know, I I think Dr. Kurlander, I don't think that he's saying that, you know, theosophy and all these ideas were naturally bad 
things. Right. That's, they that's were just kind of there. They were representative of an undercurrent that was eventually hijacked. Yeah. And it, but it didn't necessarily give rise to Nazism. No. It's just the Nazis were a part of it. It was more a symptom of things to come than a cause. And other aspects drove Nazism forward. It wasn't the occult stuff. I don't care what Trevor Ravencroft says. <laughs> it was, you know, there was so much many other events and occurrences that happened all at the same time that drove it forward. Hmm. You just got to look at, you know, look at history on that. But they definitely had that worldview that was not a scientific rationalist worldview. I think it's okay if we keep our, I, if we keep kind of keep our religions and our, in, in our society as it is now, we kind of say, okay, this is what I believe. I'm fine with that. I can share it with others, but they have to make the choice whether to believe or not. I right. can't force them to. Once you cross the line into the other side, that's the path. To, that's what leads to damnation. Just my opinion. Totally agree. And the thing, and it's not just religion, it's ideology as well. Ideology can be just as powerful as religion. I would disagree. That's a, that would maybe be a place I would maybe disagree with Dr. Kurlander about the liberal, about the left, because the left is an ideology. Communism is an ideology. And there were people that were just as passionate about communism as they were, as someone else would have been about Christianity. So there's that as well. I think we'll be about like three hours now. Oh, it's going to be after I splice in some tunes. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we'll end it there. Um, Next time we got to have two guests coming on, actually three. I hope Uh, we got Craig Ciccone coming on. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the origins of the Vietnam war because the Ken Burns series was out and there were some people that were talking about how it didn't go far enough with Kennedy and whether Kennedy wanted to be in, in Vietnam or not. And the second part will be uh, Mark Anthony Wyatt coming back Mm -hmm. and hopefully his friend Janice, I'm going to hold her to it coming on and we're going to talk about ghosts and some of their paranormal experiences and, because uh, Janice is a ghost hunter, and we, Mark, we've had on the show, and good friend that's come and hang out with us at the studio all the way from the UK. Yes. So I'm looking forward, and I think uh, I'm going to be gone, but uh, more on that later. But I think he might be coming here to hang out with you. Yeah, at some point, in hopefully in a, in a couple so, weeks. So um, I don't. I wonder what Luke thinks about all this. Oh yeah, that's right. What Luke is here? probably he's frying eating Taco Bell and. Probably. Yeah. He's frying fries over at the barbecue place. So I think we'll go ahead and call it. All right, man. I don't know if Tom Petty is yeah, I don't know either. still around or not, but keep running down the dream. I thought we were going to have a little rendition here at the end. Oh, I, I didn't get it ready. Okay. Well, you could record it for the outro. That's true. Maybe we'll do that. Okay. Well, 
All right, guys. Join us next time for more fun and frivolity on Conspiranormal. Conspiranormal. And hopefully it won't be as long.